Section 9, The Weimar Republic and Its Collapse Part 1, The Weimar Constitution The main argument brought forward in favor of the Hohenzollern militarism was its alleged efficiency. Democracy said the nationalist professors may be a form of government adequate to small countries, whose independence is safeguarded by the mutual rivalries of the great powers, or to nations like England and the United States, sheltered by their geographical situation. But it is different with Germany. Germany is surrounded by hostile nations. It stands alone in the world. Its borders are not protected by natural barriers. Its security is founded on its army, that unique achievement of the House of Hohenzollern. It would be foolish to hand over this invincible instrument to a parliament, to a body of talkative and incompetent civilians. But now the First World War had resulted in a smashing defeat and had destroyed the old prestige of the royal family of the junkers, the officers, and the civil servants. The parliamentary system of the West had given evidence of its military superiority. The war to which President Wilson had assigned the aim of making the world safe for democracy appeared as an ordeal by fire for democracy. The Germans began to revise their political creeds. They turned toward democracy. The term democracy, almost forgotten for half a century, became popular again in the last weeks of the war. Democracy meant, in the minds of the Germans, the return to the civil liberties, the rights of man, suspended in the course of the war, and above all, the substitution of parliamentary government for monarchical half-despotism. These points were, as every German knew, implied in the official program of the most numerous parliamentary party, the Social Democrats. Men expected that the Social Democrats would now realize the democratic principles of their program, and were ready to back this party in its endeavors for political reconstruction. But from the ranks of the Marxians came an answer which nobody outside the small group of professional Marx experts could have foreseen. We, class-conscious proletarians, the Marxians proclaimed, have nothing to do with your bourgeois concepts of freedom, parliamentarism, and democracy. We do not want democracy but the dictatorship of the proletariat, i.e., our dictatorship. We are not prepared to grant you bourgeois parasites the rights of men, to give you the franchise and parliamentary representation. Only Marxians and proletarians shall henceforth rule. If you misinterpreted our stand on democracy, that is your mistake. Had you studied the writings of Marx more carefully, you would have been better informed. On the second day of the revolution, the Social Democrats in Berlin appointed a new government for the Reich, the mandataries of the people. The government was a dictatorship of the Social Democrats. It was formed by the delegates of that party only, and it was not planned to give the other parties a share in the government. At the end of the war, the old Social Democratic Party was split into three groups, the Majority Socialists, the Independent Socialists, and the Communist. One half of the government members belonged to the Majority Socialists, the other half to the Independent Socialists. The most radical of the three groups did not participate in the establishment of the government. They abhorred cooperation with the moderate-majority socialists, whom they denounced as social traitors. These radicals, the Spartacus Group or Communist Party, immediately demanded the extermination of the bourgeoisie. Their condensed program was, all power must be in the hands of the Soviets, of workers and soldiers. They vigorously rejected every plan to grant political rights to people who were not members of their own party, and they frantically opposed the parliamentary system. They wanted to organize Germany according to the Soviet pattern and to liquidate the bourgeoisie in the Russian manner. They were convinced that the whole world was on the eve of the great proletarian revolution 
which was to destroy capitalism and establish the everlasting communist paradise, and they were eager to contribute their share to this glorious undertaking. The independent socialists sympathized with the views of the communists, but they were less outspoken. This very reserve made them dependent on the communists, whose radical expressions struck the keynote. The majority socialists had neither opinions of their own nor a clear idea what policy they ought to adopt. Their irresolution was not due to a change of mind with regard to their socialist convictions, but to a realization that a great part of the German socialist workers had taken seriously the democratic points in the social democratic program and were opposed to the abandonment of parliamentarism. They still believe that socialism and democracy are compatible, indeed that socialism can only be realized within a democratic community. They neither recognized the incompatibility of socialism and democracy, nor understood why Germany should prefer the Russian method of dictatorship to the Western principle of democracy. The communists were eager to seize power through violence. They trusted to Russian aid, but they felt themselves strong enough to conquer even without this foreign assistance, for they were fully convinced that the overwhelming majority of the German nation backed them. They deemed it therefore needless to make special preparations for the extermination of the bourgeoisie. As long as the adversaries kept quiet, it was unnecessary to strike the first blow. If the bourgeoisie were to start something, it would be easy to beat them down. And the first events confirmed this view. At Christmas time, 1918, a conflict broke out in Berlin between the new government and a pugnacious communist troop, the People's Sailors Division. The sailors resisted the government. The People's Mandataries, in a panic, called to their aid a not-yet-disbanded body of the old army garrisoned in the Environs of Berlin, a troop of dismounted cavalrymen of the former Royal Guards, commanded by an aristocratic general. A skirmish took place. Then the government ordered the guardsmen to retreat. They had gained a slight tactical success, but the government withdrew its forces because it lacked confidence in its own cause. It did not want to fight the comrades. This unimportant combat convinced the independent socialists that the victorious advance of communism could not be stopped. In order not to lose their popularity and not to come too late to participate in the prospective communist government, they withdrew their representatives from the body of the people's mandataries. The majority socialists were now alone in the government, alone responsible for everything that happened in the Reich, for the growing anarchy, for the unsatisfactory supply of food and other necessities, for the rapid spread of unemployment. In the eyes of the radicals, they were the defenders of reaction and injustice. There could be no doubt about the plans of these radicals. They would occupy the government buildings and imprison, probably even kill, the members of the government. In vain, Nuska, whom the government had appointed commander-in-chief, tried to organize a troop of majority socialists. No social democrat was willing to fight against the communists. The government situation seemed hopeless when on January 5, 1919, the communists and independent socialists opened the battle in the streets of Berlin and got control of the main part of the capital. But in this utmost danger, unexpected aid appeared. The Marxians report the events that followed in this way. The masses were unanimous in their support of the radical Marxian leaders and in their desire for the realization of socialism. But unfortunately, they were trusting enough to believe that the government, composed solely of old social democratic chiefs, would not hinder them in these endeavors. Yet Ebert, Noska, and Scheidemann betrayed them. These traitors, eager to save capitalism, plotted with the remnants of the old army and with the gangs hired by the capitalists, the Free Corps. 
The troops of reaction rushed in upon the unsuspecting communist leaders, assassinated them, and dispersed the masses which had lost their leaders. Thus started a policy of reaction which finally culminated in the fall of the Weimar Republic and in the ascendancy of Nazism. This statement of the facts ignores the radical change which took place in the last weeks of 1918 in the political mentality of the German nation. In October and early November 1918, the great majority of the nation was sincerely prepared to back a democratic government. As the Social Democrats were considered a democratic party, as they were the most numerous parliamentary party, there was also unanimity in the readiness to entrust to them the leading role in forming the future system of popular government. But then came the shock. Outstanding men of the Marxian party rejected democracy and declared themselves for the dictatorship of the proletariat. All that they had professed for 50 years, in short, consisted of lies. All this talk had had but one end in view, to put Rosa Luxemburg, a foreigner, in the place of the Hohenzollerns. The eyes of the Germans had been opened. How could they have let themselves be deluded by the slogans of the Democrats? Democracy, they learned, was evidently a term invented for the deception of fools. In fact, as the conservatives had always asserted, the advocates of democracy wished to establish the rule of the mob and the dictatorship of demagogues. The communists had grossly underrated the intellectual capacity of the German nation. They did not realize that it was impossible to deal with the Germans by the same methods that had succeeded in Russia. When they boasted that in 50 years of pro-democratic agitation, they had never been sincere in advocating democracy when they told the Germans, you dupes, how clever we were in gulling you. Now we have caught you. It was too much, not only for the rest of the nation, but even for the majority of the old members of the Socialist Democratic Party. Within a few weeks, Marxism and Marxian socialism, not socialism as an economic system, had lost all their former prestige. The idea of democracy itself became hopelessly suspect. From that time on, the term democracy was for many Germans synonymous with fraud. At the beginning of 1919, the communists were already much less numerous than their leaders believed, and the great majority of organized labor was also solidly against them. The nationalists were quick to comprehend this change in mentality. They seized their opportunity. A few weeks before, they had been in a state of desperation. Now they learned how to stage a comeback. The stab-in-the-back legend had already restored their lost confidence. And now they saw what their future policy must be. First, they must thwart the establishment of a red dictatorship and prevent the communists from exterminating the non-proletarians wholesale. The former conservative party and some affiliate groups had in November changed their party name to German Nationalist People's Party, Deutsche Nationale Volkspartei. In their first manifesto issued on November 24, they asked for a return from the dictatorship of one class only to parliamentary government as the only appropriate system in the light of recent events. They asked further for freedom of the individual and of conscience, for freedom of speech and science, and for equality of franchise. For the second time in German history, a party which was essentially anti-democratic presented to the electorate for purely tactical reasons, a program of liberalism and democracy. The Marxian methods found adepts. The nationalists had profited from reading Lenin and Bukharin. They had now elaborated a precise plan for their future operations for the seizure of power. They decided to support the cause of parliamentary government, freedom and democracy for the immediate future, 
in order to be able to overthrow them at a later time. They were ready to cooperate for the execution of the first part of this program, not only with the Catholics, but also with the majority socialists and their old leaders, who sat trembling in the government palaces of the Wilhelmstrasse. In order to keep out Bolshevism and to save parliamentarism and freedom for the intermediate period, it was necessary to defeat the armed forces of the communists and of the independent socialists. The available remnants of the old army, when led by able commanders, were strong enough to intervene successfully against the communists. But such commanders could not be found in the ranks of the generals. Hindenburg was an old man. His role in the war had consisted simply in giving free hand to Ludendorff. Now, without Ludendorff, he was helpless. The other generals were waiting for Hindenburg's orders. They lacked initiative. But the disintegration of army discipline had already progressed so far that this apathy of the generals could no longer hinder the army's actions. Younger officers, sometimes even lieutenants, filled the gap. Out of demobilized soldiers who were not too eager to go back to honest jobs and preferred the adventurous life of troopers to regular work, some of these officers formed free corps, at the head of which they fought on their own account. Other officers pushed aside the more scrupulous officers of the general staff and sometimes without proper respect forced the generals to take part in the civil war. The people's mandataries had already lost all hope of salvation when suddenly help appeared. Troops invaded Berlin and suppressed the communist revolt. Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg were taken prisoner and then assassinated. This victory did not end the civil war. It continued for months in the provinces and time and again broke out afresh in Berlin. However, the victory reported by the troops in January 1919 in Berlin safeguarded the elections for the Constituent Assembly, the session of this parliament, and the promulgation of the Weimar Constitution. William II used to say, Where my guards set foot, there is no further question of democracy. The Weimar democracy was of a peculiar sort. The horsemen of the Kaiser's guards had fought for it and won it. The Constitution of Weimar could be deliberated and voted only because the nationalist adversaries of democracy preferred it to the dictatorship of the communists. The German nation obtained parliamentary government as a gift from the hands of deadly foes of freedom, who waited for an opportunity to take back their present. It was in vain that the majority socialists and their affiliate, the Democratic Party, invented one legend more in order to obfuscate these sad facts. In the first months following the November Revolution, they said, the Marxians discussed in their party circles the question of what form of government would serve best the interests of German labor. The disputations were sometimes very violent because some radicals tried to disturb them. But finally, after careful deliberation, the workers resolved that parliamentary democracy would be the most appropriate form of government. This magnanimous renunciation of dictatorship was the outcome of a voluntary decision and gave new evidence of the political maturity of German labor. This interpretation of events cautiously evades dealing with the main problem. In early January 1919, there was but one political problem in Germany. The choice between Bolshevist totalitarianism under the joint dictatorship of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht on the one hand and the parliamentarism on the other. This struggle could not be decided by the peaceful methods of democracy. The communists were not prepared to yield to the majority. They were an armed troop. They had gained control of the greater part of the capital and of a good many other places. But for the nationalist gangs and troops and for the remnants of the old army, they could have seized power throughout the Reich and established Bolshevism in Germany. 
There was but one factor that could stop their assault, and that really did stop it, the armed forces of the right. The moderate Marxians are correct in asserting that not only the bourgeoisie and the farmers, but also the greater part of organized labor, was opposed to dictatorship and preferred parliamentary government. But at that time, it was no longer a question of whether a man was ready to vote for a party ticket, but of whether he was ready to stake his life for his conviction. The communists were only a small minority, but there was just one means left to combat them, by deadly weapons. Whoever wanted democracy, whether from the point of view of this Weltanschauung or simply as the lesser evil, had to attack the strongholds of communism, to rout its armed bends, and to put the government in control of the capital and of the rest of the country. Everyone knew that this was the state of affairs. Every member of the majority socialists was fully aware that not to fight the communists by force of arms was equivalent to yielding to communism. But only a few functionaries of the government made even a lame attempt to organize resistance, and their endeavors failed as all their political friends refused cooperation. It is very important to understand the ideas which, in those fateful days, shaped the attitudes of the majority socialists. For these ideas sprang out of the very essence of Marxian thought. They reappear whenever and wherever in the world people imbued with Marxian doctrines have to face similar situations. We encounter in them one of the main reasons why Marxism, leaving its economic failure out of the question, even in the field of political action, was and is the most conspicuous failure of history. The German Marxians, remember, not the communists, but those sincerely rejecting dictatorship, argued this way. It is indispensable to smash the communists in order to pave the way for democratic socialism. In those days of December 1918 and January 1919, the German non-communist Marxians were still wrapped in the illusion that the majority of the people backed their socialist program. It is necessary to defeat the communist revolt by armed resistance, but that is not our business. Nobody can expect us, Marxians and proletarians as we are, to rise in arms against our class and party comrades. A dirty job has to be done, but it is not our task to do it. Our tenets are contrary to such a policy. We must cling to the principle of class and party solidarity. Besides, it would hurt our popularity and imperil our success at the impending election. We are indeed in a very unfortunate position. For the communists do not feel themselves bound by the same idea. They can fight us because they have the enormous advantage of denouncing us as social traitors and reactionaries. We cannot pay them back in their own coin. They are revolutionaries in fighting us, but we would appear as reactionaries in fighting them. In the realm of Marxian thought, the more radical are always right in despising and attacking the more prudent party members. Nobody would believe us if we were to call them traitors and renegades. As Marxians, in this situation, we cannot help adopting an attitude of non-resistance. These over-sophisticated Marxians did not see what the German people, among them millions of old party members, realized very well, that this policy meant the abdication of German Marxism. If a ruling party has to admit, this has to be done now, this is the necessity of the hour, but we cannot do it because it does not comply with our creed, somebody else has to fill the gap. It renounces once and for all its claims to political leadership. The non-communist Marxians severely blame Ebert, Nasca, and others of their leaders for their cooperation with the nationalist vanquishers of the communist forces. But this cooperation consisted in nothing more than some consultations. 
It is likely that the frightened mandatories of the people and their aides did not conceal in these talks with the nationalist commanders that they were frightened and powerless and would be glad to be saved. But in the eyes of the adamant supporters of the principle of class solidarity, this already meant treason. The outstanding fact in all this is that German communism was defeated by the right alone, while the non-communist Marxians were eager to stay neutral. But for the nationalist armed intervention, Germany would have turned to Bolshevism in 1919. The outcome of the events of January 1919 was an enormous increase in the prestige of the nationalists. Theirs was the glory of having saved the nation, while the Social Democrats became despicable. Every new communist upheaval repeated the same experience. The nationalists fought the communists single-handed, while the Social Democrats hesitated to oppose their communist comrades. The Social Democrats ruled Prussia, the paramount state, and some of the smaller states of the Reich, but they ruled only thanks to the support they got from the nationalists of the Reichswehr and of the Free Corps. From that time on, the Social Democrats were at the mercy of the Reich. The Weimar Republic was regarded both by the nationalists and by the communists only as a battleground in their struggle for dictatorship. Both armed for civil war. Both tried several times to open the attack and had to be beaten back by force. But the nationalists daily grew more powerful, while the communists gradually became paralyzed. It was not a question of votes and number of members in parliament. The centers of gravity of these parties lay outside parliamentary affairs. The nationalists could act freely. They were supported by the majority of the intellectuals, salaried people, entrepreneurs, farmers, and by a part of skilled labor. They were familiar with the problems of German life. They could just adjust their action to the changing political and economic conditions of the nation and of each of its provinces. The communists, on the other hand, had to obey orders issued by ignorant Russian chiefs who are not familiar with Germany, and they were forced to change their policies overnight whenever the Central Committee of Moscow ordered them to do so. No intelligent or honest man could endure such slavery. The intellectual and moral quality of the German communist leaders was consequently far below the average level of German politicians. They were no match for the nationalists. The communists played the role in German politics only of saboteurs and conspirators. After January 1919, they no longer had any chance of success. Of course, the ten years of Nazi misrule have revived German communism. On the day of Hitler's collapse, they will be the strongest party in Germany. The Germans would have decided in 1918 in favor of democracy if they had had the choice. But as things were, they had only the choice between the two dictatorships, of the communists and of the nationalists. Between these two dictatorial parties, there was no third group ready to support capitalism and its political corollary democracy. Neither the majority socialists and their affiliates, the Democratic Party, nor the Catholic Center Party was fitted for the adoption of plutocratic democracy and of bourgeois republicanism. Their past and their ideologies were strongly opposed to such an attitude. The Hohenzollerns lost their throne because they rejected British parliamentarism. The Weimar Republic failed because it rejected French republicanism as realized from 1875 to 1930 in the Third Republic. The Weimar Republic had no program but to steer a middle course between two groups aiming at dictatorship. For the supporters of the government parliamentarism was not the best system of government. It was only an emergency measure, an expedient. The majority socialists wanted to be moderate Marxians and moderate nationalists, nationalist Marxians and Marxian nationalists. 
The Catholics wanted to combine nationalism and socialism with Catholicism, and yet to maintain democracy. Such eclecticism is doomed. It does not appeal to youth, it succumbs in every conflict with resolute adversaries. There is only one alternative to nationalism left, the adoption of unrestricted free trade. Nobody in Germany considered such a reversion. It would have required an abandonment of all measures of sozialpolitik, government control, and trade union pressure. Those parties that believed they were fighting radical nationalism, the Social Democrats and their satellites, then the Communists, the Center, and some farmer groups, were on the contrary fanatical supporters of Etaism and hyper-protectionism. But they were too narrow-minded to see that these policies presented Germany with the tremendous problem of autarky. They simply shut their eyes. We should not overrate the intellectual capacities of the German masses, but they were not too dull to see that autarky was the focal problem of Germany and that only the nationalist parties had an idea, although a spurious one, of how to deal with it. While the other parties shunned a discussion of its dangers, the nationalists offered a plan for a solution. As this plan of world conquest was the only one offered to the Germans, they endorsed it. No one told them that there was another way out. The Marxians and the Catholics were not even keen enough to point out that the Nazi plan of world domination was doomed to military failure. They were anxious not to hurt the vanity of the people, firmly assured of their own invincibility. But even if the adversaries of aggression had adequately exposed the dangers and the risks of a new war, the plain citizen would still have given preference to the Nazis. For the more cautious and subtle Nazis said, we have a precise plan for the salvation of Germany. It is a very risky plan and we cannot guarantee success. But anyhow, it gives us a chance while no one else has any idea how to deal with our serious condition. If you drift, your fate is sealed. If you follow us, there is at least a prospect of success. The conduct of the German left was no less an ostrich policy than that of the left in Great Britain and in France. On the one hand, the left advocated state omnipotence and consequently hyper-protectionism. On the other hand, it gave no thought to the fact that within a world of autarky, Germany was doomed to starvation. The German Marxian refugees boast that their parties made some, very lame and timid indeed, endeavors to prevent German rearmament. But this was only a proof of their inconsistency and their inability to see reality as it was. Whoever wanted to maintain peace had to fight Etaism. Yet the left was no less fanatical in its support of Etaism than the right. The whole German nation favored a policy of government interference with business, which must result in Zwangschwerschaft. But only the Nazis grasped the fact that while Russia could live in autarky, Germany could not. Therefore, the Nazis succeeded, for they did not encounter any party advocating laissez-faire, i.e. a market economy. Part 2. The Abortive Socialization The Social Democrats had put at the top of their party programs the demand for the socialization. Vergelschaftung, of the means of production. This would have been clear and unambiguous if people had been ready to interpret it as forcible expropriation of the means of production by the state, and consequently as government management of all branches of economic activity. But the Social Democrats emphatically asserted that this was not at all the meaning of their basic claim. Nationalization, Verstaatlichung, and socialization, they insisted, were two entirely different things. The measures of nationalization and municipalization, Verstaatlichung, 
of various plants and enterprises, which the Reich and its member states had considered since the 80s an essential part of their socioeconomic policies, were, they maintained, neither socialization nor the first steps toward it. They were, on the contrary, the outcome of a capitalist policy extremely detrimental to the interests of labor. The unfavorable experience with these nationalized and municipalized concerns, therefore, had no bearing on the socialist demand for socialization. However, the Marxians did not explain what socialization really means and how it differs from nationalization. They made some clumsy attempts, but very soon they retired from the discussion of this awkward problem. The subject was tabooed. No decent German was rash enough to break this ban by raising the question. The First World War brought about a trend toward war socialism. One branch of business after the other was centralized i.e. forcibly placed under the management of a committee whose members, the entrepreneurs of the branch concerned, were nothing but an advisory board of the government's commissary. Thus, the government obtained full control of all vital branches of business. The Hindenburg Program advocated an all-round application of the system for all branches of German trade and production. Its execution would have transformed Germany into a purely socialist commonwealth of the Zwangswirtschaft pattern. But the Hindenburg program was not yet completely realized when the German Empire collapsed. War socialism was extremely unpopular in Germany. People even blamed it for what was not its fault. It was not exclusively to blame for German starvation. The blockade, the absence of millions of workers serving in the armed forces, and the fact that a good deal of the productive effort had to be directed to the production of armament and munitions contributed to the distress even more than the inadequacy of socialist methods of production. The Social Democrats should have pointed out these things as well, but they did not want to miss any opportunity which could be exploited for demagogic distortion of facts. They attacked the Zwangswirtschaft as such. The Zwangswirtschaft was the worst kind of capitalist exploitation and abuse they contended, and it had demonstrated the urgent need for the substitution of socialism for capitalism. The end of the war brought military defeat, revolution, civil war, famine, and desolation. Millions of demobilized soldiers, many of whom had retained their arms, flowed back to their homes. They robbed the military magazines. They stopped trains to search them for food. In company with workers dismissed by plants which had been forced overnight to discontinue the production of munitions, they raided the open country for bread and potatoes. The villagers organized armed resistance. Conditions were chaotic. The inexperienced and ignorant socialists who had seized the government were helpless. They had no idea how to cope with the situation. Their orders and counter-orders disintegrated the apparatus of administration. The starving masses called for food and were fed bombastic speeches. In this emergency, capitalism gave proof of its adaptability and efficiency. The entrepreneurs, at last defying the innumerable laws and decrees of the Zwangswirtschaft, tried to make their plants run again. The most urgent need was to resume production for export in order to buy food and raw materials in the neutral countries and in the Balkans. Without such imports, Germany would have been doomed. The entrepreneurs succeeded in their efforts and thus saved Germany. People called them profiteers but scrambled for the goods brought to the market and were happy to acquire these badly needed necessities. The unemployed found jobs again. Germany began to return to normal. The socialists did not worry much about the slackening of Zwangswirtschaft. In their opinion, the system, far from being socialist, was a capitalist evil that had to be abolished as soon as possible. Now, real socialization had to start. But what did socialization mean? 
It was, said the Marxians, neither the kind of thing represented by the nationalization of state railroads, state mines, and so on, nor the war socialism of Zwangswirtschaft. But what else could it be? Marxians of all groups had to admit they did not know. For more than 50 years, they had advocated socialization as the focal point of their party program. Now that they had seized power, they must start to execute their program. Now they had to socialize. But at once it became apparent that they did not know what socialization meant. It was really rather awkward. Fortunately, the socialist leaders remembered that there is a class of men whose business it is to know everything. The omniscient professors. The government appointed a socialization committee. The majority of its members were social democrats. Yet it was not from these that the solution of the riddle was expected, but from the professors. The professors whom the government nominated were not social democrats. They were advocates of that sociopolitik, which in earlier years had favored the nationalization and municipalization of various enterprises, and in recent years had supported the planned economy, the Zwangsertschaft. They had always backed precisely the reformism that the orthodox Marxians denounced as capitalist humbug, detrimental to the interests of the proletarians. The Socialization Committee deliberated many years, splitting hairs, distilling over-sophisticated definitions, drafting spurious plans, and selling very bad economics. Its minutes and reports, collected in shelves of thick volumes, rest in the libraries for the edification of future generations. They are a token of the intellectual decay brought about by Marxism and Etaism. But they fail to answer the question of what else socialization could mean besides nationalization, Verstattlichung, or planning, Zwangswirtschaft. There are only two methods of socialization, both of which had been applied by the German imperial government. There is, on the one hand, outright nationalization, today the method of Soviet Russia, and there is, on the other hand, central planning, the Zwangswirtschaft of the Hindenburg program and the method of the Nazis. The German Marxians had barred both ways to themselves through their hypocritical demagogy. The Marxians of the Weimar Republic not only did not further the trend towards socialization, they tolerated the virtual abandonment of the most effective socialization measures inaugurated by the imperial government. Their adversaries, foremost among them the regime of the Catholic Chancellor Brüning, later resumed the policy of planning, and the Nazis perfected these endeavors by establishing all-round planning, the German socialism of the Zwangsrechtschaft type. The German workers, both social democrats and communists, were not much concerned about socialization. For them, as Kotsky remarked, the revolution meant only an opportunity to raise wages. Higher wages, higher unemployment doles, and shorter hours of work meant more to them than socialization. This situation was not the result of treason on the part of socialist leaders, but of the inherent contradictions in the social democratic creed. The Marxians advocated a program whose realization was bound to render the state omnipotent and totalitarian. But they also talked indefatigably about shaking off this state rubbish in its entirety, about the withering away of the state. They advocated socialization but rejected the only two methods available for its achievement. They talked of the frustration of trade unionism as a means of improving the conditions of these workers. But they made trade union policies the focal point of their political action. They taught that socialism could not be attained before capitalism had reached its full maturity, and disparaged as petty bourgeois all measures designed to check or delay the evolution of capitalism. But they themselves vehemently and fanatically demanded such measures. These contradictions and inconsistencies 
not machinations of capitalists or entrepreneurs, caused the downfall of German Marxism. True, the leaders of the Social Democrats were incompetent, some were corrupt and insincere. But this was no accident. No intelligent man could fail to see the essential shortcomings of Marxian doctrine. Corruption is an evil inherent in every government not controlled by a watchful public opinion. Those who were prepared to take the demand for socialization seriously deserted the ranks of Marxism for those of Nazism. For the Nazis, although still more corrupt morally, aimed unambiguously at the realization of central planning. Part 3. The Armed Parties The November Revolution brought a resurgence of a phenomenon that had long before disappeared from German history. Military adventurers formed armed bands or Freikorps and acted on their own behalf. The communist revolutionaries had inaugurated this method, but soon the nationalists adopted and perfected it. Dismissed officers of the old army called together demobilized soldiers and maladjusted boys and offered their protection to the peasants menaced by raids of starving townsfolk and to the population of the eastern frontiers suffering from Polish and Lithuanian guerrilla invasions. The landlords and the farmers provided them in return for their services with food and shelter. When the condition which had made their interference appear useful changed, these gangs began to blackmail and to extort money from landowners, businessmen, and other wealthy people. They became a public calamity. The government did not dare to dissolve them. Some of the bands had fought bravely against the communists. Others had successfully defended the eastern provinces against the Poles and Lithuanians. They boasted of these achievements, and the nationalist youth did not conceal their sympathy for them. The old leaders of the Nationalist Party were profoundly hostile to these unmanageable gang leaders, who defied their advice and whose heedless actions came into collision with their considered plans. The extortions of the Free Corps were a heavy burden for the landowners and peasants. The bands were no longer needed as a safeguard against communist uprisings. The Reichswehr, the new army reorganized according to the provisions of the Treaty of Versailles, was now strong enough for this task. The nationalist champions were quite right in suspecting that the young men who formed these corps hoped to displace them in the leadership of the nationalist movement. They devised a clever scheme for their suppression. The Reichswehr had to incorporate them and thus render them innocuous. As it became more difficult from day to day for the captains of the Free Corps to provide funds for the sustenance of their men, they were ready to accept this offer and to obey the orders of the army officers. This solution, however, was a breach of the Treaty of Versailles, which had limited the size of the Reichswehr to a 100,000 men. Hence, conflicts arose with the French and the British representatives. The Allied powers demanded the total disbandment of the so-called Black Reichswehr. When the government, complying, decided to dissolve the most important black troop, the Sailors' Earhart Brigade, it hastened the outbreak of the Cap insurrection. War and civil war and the revolutionary mentality of the Marxians and of the nationalists had created such a spirit of brutality that the political parties gave their organizations a military character. Both these nationalist right and the Marxian left had their armed forces. These party troops were, of course, entirely different from the free corps formed by nationalist hotspurs and by communist radicals. Their members were people who had their regular jobs and were busy from Monday to Saturday noon. On weekends, they would don their uniforms and parade with brass bands, flags, and often with their firearms. They were proud of their membership in these associations, but they were not eager to fight. They were not animated by a spirit of aggression. Their existence, their parades, their boasting, 
and the challenging speeches of their chiefs were a nuisance but not a serious menace to domestic peace. After the failure of the revolutionary attempts of Kapp in March 1920, that of Hitler and Ludendorff in November 1923, and of the various communist uprisings of which the most important was the Hulse riot in March 1921, Germany was on the way back to normal conditions. The Free Corps and the communist gangs began slowly to disappear from the political stage. They still waged some guerrilla warfare with each other and against the police. But these fights degenerated more and more into gangsterism and rowdyism. Such riots and the plots of a few adventurers could not endanger the stability of the social order. But the Social Democratic Party and press made the blunder of repeatedly denouncing the few still operating Nationalist Free Corps and vehemently insisting on their dissolution. This attitude was a challenge to the Nationalist parties who disliked the adventurers no less than the Social Democrats did, but did not dare to abandon them openly. They retorted by calling for the dissolution of the communist formations as well. But the Social Democrats were in a similar position with regard to the communist bands. They hated and feared them, yet did not want to combat them openly. As in the Bismarck Reich, so in the Weimar Republic, the main powers of civil administration were not assigned to the government of the Reich, but to the governments of the member states. Prussia was the largest and richest member state. Its population was the most numerous. It was the Reich's center of gravity, or properly speaking, the Reich. The fact that the Conservative Party had dominated Prussia had given the Conservatives hegemony over Imperial Germany. The fact that the Social Democrats ruled Prussia under the Weimar Republic made them paramount in the Republican Reich. When Chancellor Papen's coup d'etat of July 20, 1932 overthrew the socialist regime in Prussia, the struggle for the Reich was virtually decided. The Bavarian government was reluctant to disband the nationalist bands on its territory. It was not sympathy with the nationalists, but provincial particularism that determined this attitude. To disobey the central authority was for it a matter of principle. The government of the Reich was helpless because it had but one means to impose its will on a disobedient member state, namely civil war. In this plight, the social democratic Prussian government took recourse to a fateful measure. On February 22, 1924, in Madgeburg, it founded the Reichsbanner Gold. This was not a private troop like the other armed party forces. It was an army of Prussia's ruling party and had the full support of the Prussian government. An outstanding Prussian functionary, the governor of the province of Saxony, was appointed its chief. The Reichsbanner was to be a non-partisan association of all men loyal to the Republican system of government and the constitution of Weimar. Virtually, however, it was a social democratic institution. Its leaders insisted that members of other loyal parties were welcome in its ranks. But the immense majority of the members were social democrats who up to that time had been members of the various local and provincial social democratic armed party forces. Thus, the foundation of the Reichsbanner did not strengthen the military forces of the social democrats. It only gave them a new, more centralized organization and the sanction of the Prussian state. Members of the Catholic Center Party were never very numerous in the Reichsbanner and soon disappeared completely from its ranks. The Third Loyal Party, the Democrats, were merely an insignificant affiliate of the Social Democrats. The Social Democrats have tried to justify the foundation of the Reichsbanner by referring to the nationalist bias of the Reichswehr, the 100,000 soldiers who formed the Reich's army. But the Kopp revolt had demonstrated that the socialists had a very efficacious weapon available to defeat the nationalists in the general strike. 
The only serious menace for the Weimar Republic was the national sympathies within the ranks of organized labor. The Social Democratic chiefs were unable to work successfully against these tendencies. Many secretly sympathized with them. The ominous import of the foundation of the Reichsbanner was that it provided Hitler with a good start. His Munich Putsch of November 1923 had resulted in complete failure. When he left prison in December 1924, his political prospects looked black. The foundation of the Reichsbanner was just what he wanted. All the non-Marxians, i.e. the majority of the population, were terrified by the defiant speeches of its chief, and the fact that at the end of the first year of its existence, its membership was three millions more than the membership of all the Werverbande of the right together. Like the Social Democrats, they overrated the strength of the Reichsbanner and its readiness to fight. Thus, a good many people were prepared to aid the Nazi stormtroopers. But these stormtroopers were very different from the other armed party forces, both of the left and of the right. Their members were not elderly men who had fought in the First World War and who now were eager to hold their jobs in order to support their families. The Nazi stormtroopers were, as the Free Corps had been, jobless boys who made a living from their fighting. They were available at every hour of every day, not merely on weekends and holidays. It was doubtful whether the party forces, either of the left or the right, would be ready to fight when seriously attacked. It was certain that they would never be ready to wage a campaign of aggression. But Hitler's troops were pugnacious. They were professional brawlers. They would have fought for their Führer in a bloody civil war if the opponents of Nazism had not yielded without resistance in 1933. Hitler got subsidies from big business in the first period of his career. He extorted much greater sums from it in the second period of his struggle for supremacy. Eisen and the rest paid him, but they did not bribe him. Hitler took their money as a king takes the tribute of his subjects. If they had refused to give him what he asked, he would have sabotaged their plants or even murdered them. Such drastic measures were needless. The entrepreneurs preferred to be reduced by Nazism to the status of shop managers than to be liquidated by communism in the Russian way. As conditions were in Germany, there was no third course open to them. Both force and money are impotent against ideas. The Nazis did not owe their conquest of Germany either to their getting a few million Reichsmarks from big business or to their being ruthless fighters. The great majority of the German nation had been both socialist and nationalist for many years. The Social Democratic Trade Union members sympathized as much with nationalist radicalism as did the peasants, the Catholics, and the shopkeepers. The communists owed their votes in great part to the idea that communism was the best means to establish German hegemony in Europe and defeat Western capitalism. The German entrepreneurs and businessmen contributed their share to the triumph of Nazism, but so did all other strata of the nation. Even the churches, both Catholic and Protestant, were no exception. Great ideological changes are scarcely explained by saying that somebody's money was spent in their behalf. The popularity of communism in present-day America, whatever else it may be, is not the result either of the lavish subventions of the Russian government or of the fact that some millionaires subsidize the newspapers and periodicals of the left. And though it is true that some Jewish bankers, frightened by Nazi anti-Semitism, contributed to Socialist Party funds, and that far the richest endowment ever made for the study of the social sciences in Germany was that of a Jewish grain dealer for the foundation of a Marxian institute at the University of Frankfurt. German Marxism, nevertheless, was not, as the Nazis contend, the product of Jewish jobbers. The slogan, National Solidarity, 
Volksgemeinschaft, had got such a hold on the German mentality that nobody dared to resist the Nazis when they struck their final blow. The Nazis crushed the hopes of many groups who once supported them. Big business, the landowners and the farmers, the artisans and the shopkeepers, the churches, all were disappointed. But the prestige of the main items of the Nazi creed, nationalism and socialism, was so overwhelming that this dissatisfaction had no important consequences. Only one thing could put an end to Nazi rule, a military defeat. The blockade and the bombing of German cities by British and American planes will finally convince the Germans that Nazism is not the best means to make their nation prosperous. Part 4. The Treaty of Versailles The four peace treaties of Versailles, Saint-Germain, Trianon, and Sèvres together form the most clumsy diplomatic settlement ever carried out. They will be remembered as outstanding examples of political failure. Their aim was to bring lasting peace. The result was a series of minor wars and finally a new and more terrible world war. They were intended to safeguard the independence of small states. The results were the disappearance of Austria, Abyssinia, Albania, Czechoslovakia. They were designed to make the world safer for democracy. The results were Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, Horthy. However, one reproach generally cast upon the Treaty of Versailles is entirely unfounded. German propaganda succeeded in convincing public opinion in the Anglo-Saxon countries that the terms of the treaty were extremely unfair to Germany, that the hardships they inflicted upon the Germans drove them to despair, and that Nazism and the present war are the outcome of the mistreatment of Germany. This is wholly untrue. The political order given to Europe by the four treaties was very unsatisfactory. The settlement of East European problems was done with such disregard of the real conditions that chaos resulted. But the Treaty of Versailles was not unfair to Germany, and it did not plunge the German people into misery. If the provisions of the treaty had been enforced, it would have been impossible for Germany to rearm and to attack again. The mischief was not that the treaty was bad so far as Germany was concerned, but that the victorious powers permitted Germany to defy some of its most important clauses. The treaty obliged Germany to cede non-German territories that Prussia had conquered, and whose mainly non-German-speaking population was decidedly opposed to German rule. Germany's only title to these countries was previous conquest. It was not, as the German propagandists used to say, the most scandalous robbery ever committed that the Reich was forced to give back what the Hohenzollerns had seized in earlier years. The favorite subject of German propaganda was the Polish Corridor. What, shouted the Nazi speakers and their foreign friends, would the British or the French have said if a piece of land had been cut out from their country, dividing it into two disconnected parts, in order to give a passageway to some other nation? Such utterances impressed public opinion all over the world. The Poles themselves threw little light upon the subject. In all those years, they were ruled by an incompetent and corrupt oligarchy, and this ruling clique lacked the intellectual power to combat the German propaganda. The true facts are these. In the Middle Ages, the Teutonic Knights conquered the country, which is today known as the Prussian province of East Prussia. But they did not succeed in their attempts to conquer the territory, which in 1914 was the Prussian province of West Prussia. Thus, East Prussia did not adjoin the German Empire. Between the western boundaries of East Prussia and the eastern borders of the Holy Empire, there lay a piece of land ruled by the kings of Poland forming a part of Poland and inhabited by Poles. This piece of land, namely West Prussia, was in 1772 
annexed by Prussia at the first partition of Poland. It is important to realize that West Prussia, and the same is true for the Prussian province of Posen, was annexed by Prussia, not by the German Empire. These provinces belonged neither to the Holy Empire, which disintegrated in 1806, nor to the German Confederation, which from 1815 to 1866 was the political organization of the German nation. They were the private property, as it were, of the kings of Prussia. The fact that the King of Prussia, in his capacity as Elector Marquis of Brandenburg and as Duke of Pomerania, was a member of the Holy Empire and of the German Confederation, had legally and constitutionally no more significance for these eastern provinces than the fact once had for Great Britain that the King of England was in his capacity as Elector and later King of Hanover, a Prince of the Holy Empire and later a member of the German Confederation. Until 1866, the relation of these provinces to Germany was like the relation of Virginia or Massachusetts to Germany between 1714 and 1776, and of Scotland from 1714 to 1837. They were foreign countries ruled by a prince who happened at the same time to rule a German country. It was only in 1866 that the King of Prussia incorporated these provinces by his own sovereign decision into the Norddeutscher Bund and in 1871 into the Deutsches Reich. The people living in these countries were not asked whether they agreed or not. In fact, they did not agree. They returned Polish members to the German Reichstag, and they were anxious to preserve their Polish idiom and their allegiance to Polish traditions. For 50 years, they resisted every endeavor of the Prussian government to Germanize them. When the Treaty of Versailles renewed Poland's independence and restored the provinces of Posen and of Western Prussia to Poland, it did not give a corridor to Poland. It simply undid the effects of earlier Prussian, not German, conquests. It was not the fault of the peacemakers or of the Poles that the Teutonic Knights had conquered a country not adjoining the Reich. The Treaty of Versailles returned Alsace-Lorraine to France and northern Schleswig to Denmark. It did not rob Germany in these cases either. The population of these countries violently opposed German rule and longed to be freed from its yoke. Germany had but one title to oppress these people. Conquest. The logical outcome of defeat was ceding the spoils of earlier conquest. The second provision of the treaty, which used to be criticized severely, concerned reparations. The Germans had devastated a great part of Belgium and of northeastern France. Who was to pay for the reconstruction of these areas? France and Belgium, the assailed, or Germany, the aggressor. The victorious, or the defeated. The treaty decided that Germany ought to pay. We need not enter into a detailed discussion of the reparations problem. It is sufficient here to determine whether the reparations really meant misery and starvation for Germany. Let us see what Germany's income and reparation payments were in the period from 1925 to 1930. The author's table compares the income per capita of Germans in Reichsmarks to the per capita reparations payment as required by the Treaty of Versailles over a period of six years. The table shows that over a period of six years from 1925 to 1930 inclusive, the reparations payment required by the Treaty of Versailles as a percentage of income ranges from 1.69 to 3.24%. It is a grotesque misrepresentation of the facts to assert that these payments made Germany poor and condemned the Germans to starvation. They would not have seriously affected the German standard of living even if the Germans had paid these sums out of their own pocket, and not as they did in fact out of money borrowed from abroad. For the years 1925 to 1929, there are figures available concerning the increase of German capital. 
These increases are in millions of Reichsmarks. In 1925, 5,770 Reichsmarks. In 1926, 10,123 Reichsmarks. In 1927, 7,125 Reichsmarks. In 1928, 7,469 Reichsmarks. And in 1929, 6,815 Reichsmarks. From September 24 until July 1931, Germany paid as reparations under the Dawes and Young Plan 10,821 million Reichsmarks. Then the payments stop altogether. Against this outflow, Germany's private and public indebtedness abroad, most of which originated in the same period, amounted to something over 20,500 million Reichsmarks. To this may be added approximately 5,000 million Reichsmarks of direct foreign investments in Germany. It is obvious that Germany did not suffer from lack of capital. If any more proof were needed, it may be found in the fact that Germany invested in the same period approximately 10,000 million Reichsmarks abroad. The reparations were not responsible for Germany's economic distress. But if the Allies had insisted on their payment, they would have seriously hampered Germany's rearmament. The anti-reparations campaign resulted in a complete fiasco for the Allies and in their full success of Germany's refusal to pay. What the Germans did pay, they paid out of foreign borrowings, which they later repudiated. Thus, the whole burden, in fact, fell on foreigners. With regard to possible future reparations, it is extremely important to know the basic causes of this previous failure. The Allies were, from the very beginning of the negotiations, handicapped by their adherence to the spurious monetary doctrines of present-day etatist economics. They were convinced that the payments represented a danger to the maintenance of monetary stability in Germany and that Germany could not pay unless its balance of trade were favorable. They were concerned by a spurious transfer problem. They were disposed to accept the German thesis that political payments have effects radically different from payments originating from commercial transactions. This entanglement in mercantilist fallacies led them not to fix the total amount due in the peace treaty itself, but to defer the decision to later negotiations. In addition, it induced them to stipulate deliveries in kind, to insert the Transfer Protection Clause, and finally to agree to the Hoover Moratoriums of July 1931 and the cancellation of all reparation payments. The truth is that the maintenance of monetary stability and of a sound currency system has nothing whatever to do with the balance of payments or of trade. There is only one thing that endangers monetary stability, inflation. If a country neither issues additional quantities of paper money nor expands credit, it will not have any monetary troubles. An excess of exports is not a prerequisite for the payment of reparations. The causation, rather, is the other way around. The fact that a nation makes such payments has the tendency to create such an excess of exports. There is no such thing as a transfer problem. If the German government collects the amount needed for the payments in Reichsmarks by taxing its citizens, every German taxpayer must correspondingly reduce his consumption, either of German or of imported products. In the second case, the amount of foreign exchange which otherwise would have been used for the purchase of these imported goods becomes available. In the first case, the prices of domestic products drop, and this tends to increase exports and thereby the amount of foreign exchange available. Thus, collecting at home the amount of Reichmarks required for the payment automatically provides the quantity of foreign exchange needed for the transfer. None of this, of course, depends in any way on whether the payments are political or commercial. The payment of reparations, it is true, would have hurt the German taxpayer. It would have forced him to restrict his consumption. 
Under any circumstances, somebody had to pay for the damage inflicted. What the aggressors did not pay had to be paid by the victims of the aggression. But nobody pitied the victims, while hundreds of writers and politicians all over the world wept both crocodile and real tears over the Germans. Perhaps it would have been politically wiser to choose another method for fixing the amount to be paid every year by Germany. For instance, the annual payment could have been brought into some fixed relation to the sums spent in future for Germany's armed forces. For every Reichmark spent on the German army and navy, a multiple might have had to be paid as an installment. But all schemes would have proved ineffective as long as the Allies were under the spell of mercantilist fallacies. The inflow of Germany's payments necessarily rendered the receiving country's balance of trade unfavorable. Their imports exceeded their exports because they collected the reparations. From the viewpoint of mercantilist fallacies, this effect seemed alarming. The Allies were at once eager to make Germany pay and not to get the payments. They simply did not know what they wanted. But the Germans knew very well what they wanted. They did not want to pay. Germany complained that the trade barriers of the other nations rendered its payments more burdensome. This grievance was well-founded. The Germans would have been right if they had really attempted to provide the means required for cash payments by an increase of exports. But what they paid in cash was provided for them by foreign loans. The Allies were mistaken to the extent that they blamed the Germans for the failure of the treaty's reparation clauses. They should rather have indicted their own mercantilist prejudices. These clauses would not have failed if there had been in the Allied countries a sufficient number of influential spokesmen who knew how to refute the objections raised by the German nationalists. Foreign observers have entirely misunderstood the role played by the Treaty of Versailles in the agitation of the Nazis. The nucleus of their propaganda was not the unfairness of the treaty, it was the stab-in-the-back legend. We are, they used to say, the most powerful nation in Europe, even in the world. The war has evidenced anew our invincibility. We can, if we want to, put to rout all other nations. But the Jews have stabbed us in the back. The Nazis mentioned the treaty only in order to demonstrate the full villainy of the Jews. We, the victorious nation, they said, have been forced to surrender by the November crime. Our government pays reparations, although nobody is strong enough to force us to do that. Our Jewish and Marxian rulers abide by the disarmament clauses of the treaty because they want us to pay this money to world Jewry. Hitler did not fight the treaty. He fought those Germans who had voted in the German parliament for its acceptance and who objected to its unilateral breach. For that, Germany was powerful enough to annul the treaty the nationalists considered already proved by the stab-in-the-back legend. Many allied and neutral critics of the Treaty of Versailles used to assert that it was a mistake to leave Germany any cause for grievance. This view was erroneous. Even if the treaty had left Germany's European territory untouched, if it had not forced it to cede its colonies, if it had not imposed reparation payments and limitations of armaments, a new war would not have been averted. The German nationalists were determined to conquer more dwelling space. They were eager to obtain autarky. They were convinced that their military prospects for victory were excellent. Their aggressive nationalism was not a consequence of the Treaty of Versailles. The grievances of the Nazis had little to do with the treaty. They concerned Lebensraum. There have been frequent comparisons of the Treaty of Versailles with the settlements of 1814 and 1815. The system of Vienna succeeded in safeguarding European peace for many years. Its generous treatment of the vanquished French allegedly prevented France from planning wars of revenge. 
If the Allies had treated Germany in a similar way, it is contended, they would have had better results. A century and a half ago, France was the paramount power in continental Europe. Its population, its wealth, its civilization, and its military efficiency eclipsed those of the other nations. If the French of those days had been nationalists in the modern sense, they would have had the opportunity to attain and hold hegemony on the continent for some time. But nationalism was foreign to the French of the revolutionary period. They were, it is true, chauvinists. They considered themselves, perhaps on better grounds than some other peoples, the flower of mankind. They were proud of their newly acquired liberty. They believed that it was their duty to assist other nations in their struggle against tyranny. They were chauvinists, patriots, and revolutionaries. But they were not nationalists. They were not eager for conquest. They did not start the war. Foreign monarchs attacked them. They defeated the invaders. It was then that ambitious generals, foremost among them Napoleon, pushed them toward territorial expansion. The French certainly connived at the beginning, but they grew more and more reluctant as they began to realize that they were bleeding for the sake of the Bonaparte family. After Waterloo, they were relieved. Now they no longer had to worry about the fate of their sons. Few Frenchmen complained about the loss of the Rhineland, the Netherlands, or Italy. No Frenchman wept because Joseph was no longer king of Spain or Jerome no longer king of Westphalia. Austerlitz and Jena became historical reminiscences. The citizens' conceit derived edification from the poetry praising the late emperor and his battles, but no one was now eager to subdue Europe. Again, later, the events of June 1848 directed attention to the emperor's nephew. Many expected him to overcome the new domestic troubles in the same way his uncle had dealt with the First Revolution. There is no doubt that the third Napoleon owed his popularity solely to the glory of his uncle. Nobody knew him in France, and he knew nobody. He had seen the country only through prison bars, and he spoke French with a German accent. He was only the nephew, the heir of a great name, nothing more. Certainly the French did not choose him because they wanted new wars. He brought them to his side by persuading them that his rule would safeguard peace. The empire means peace, was the slogan of his propaganda. Savastopol and Solferino did not advance his popularity, they rather injured it. Victor Hugo, the literary champion of the first Napoleon's glory, unswervingly vilified his successor. The work of the Congress of Vienna would endure, in short, because Europe was peace-loving and considered war an evil. The work of Versailles was doomed to fail in this age of aggressive nationalism. What the Treaty of Versailles really tried to achieve was contained in its military clauses. The restriction of German armament and the demilitarization of the Rhineland did not harm Germany because no nation ventured to attack it. But they would have enabled France and Great Britain to prevent a new German aggression if they had been earnestly resolved to prevent it. It is not the fault of the treaty that the victorious nations did not attempt to enforce its provisions. Part 5 The Economic Depression the Great German Inflation was the result of the monetary doctrines of the socialists of the chair. It had little to do with a course of military and political events. The present writer forecasted it in 1912. The American economist B. M. Anderson confirmed this forecast in 1917. But most of those men who between 1914 and 1923 were in a position to influence Germany's monetary and banking policies, and all journalists, writers, and politicians who dealt with these problems labored under the delusion that an increase in the quantity of banknotes does not affect commodity prices and foreign exchange rates. They blamed the blockade or profiteering for the rise of commodity prices 
and the unfavorable balance of payments for the rise of foreign exchange rates. They did not lift a finger to stop inflation. Like all pro-inflation parties, they wanted to combat merely the undesirable but inevitable consequences of inflation, i.e. the rise of commodity prices. Their ignorance of economic problems pushed them toward price control and foreign exchange restrictions. They could never understand why these attempts were doomed to fail. The inflation was neither an act of God nor a consequence of the Treaty of Versailles. It was the practical application of the same etaist ideas that had begotten nationalism. All the German political parties shared responsibility for the inflation. They all clung to the error that it was not the increase of bank credits, but the unfavorable balance of payments that was devaluing their currency. The inflation had pauperized the middle classes. The victims joined Hitler. But they did not do so because they had suffered, but because they believed that Nazism would relieve them. That a man suffers from bad digestion does not explain why he consults a quack. He consults the quack because he thinks that the man will cure him. If he had other opinions, he would consult a doctor. That there was economic distress in Germany does not account for Nazism's success. Other parties also, example, the Social Democrats and the Communists, recommended their patent medicines. Germany was struck by the Great Depression from 1929 on, but not to a greater extent than other nations. On the contrary, in the years of this depression, the prices of foodstuffs and raw materials that Germany imports decreased more than the prices of manufacturers that it exports. The depression would have resulted in a fall in wage rates, but as the trade unions would not permit wage cuts, unemployment increased. Both the Social Democrats and the Communists were confident that the increase of unemployment would strengthen their forces, but it worked for Nazism. The Great Depression was international. Only in Germany, however, did it result in the victory of a party recommending armaments and war as a panacea. Part 6. Nazism and German Labor A riddle that has puzzled nearly all writers dealing with the problems of Nazism is this. There were in Germany many millions organized in the parties of the Social Democrats, of the Communists, and of the Catholic Center. They were members of the trade unions affiliated with these parties. How could the Nazis succeed in overthrowing these masses of resolute adversaries and in establishing their totalitarian system? Did these millions change their minds overnight? Or were they cowards yielding to the terror of the stormtroopers and waiting for the day of redemption? Are the German workers still Marxians, or are they sincere supporters of the Nazi system? There is a fundamental error in posing the problem in this way. People take it for granted that the members of the various party clubs and trade unions were convinced social democrats, communists, or Catholics, and that they fully endorsed the creeds and programs of their leaders. It is not generally realized that party allegiance and trade union membership were virtually obligatory. Although the closed-shop system was not carried to the extreme in Weimar Germany, that it is today in Nazi Germany, and in some branches of foreign industry, it had gone far enough. In the greater part of Germany and in most of the branches of German production, it was practically impossible for a worker to stay outside of all the big trade union groups. If he wanted a job or did not want to be dismissed, or if he wanted the unemployment dole, he had to join one of these unions. They exercised an economic and political pressure to which every individual had to yield. To join the union became practically a matter of routine for the worker. He did so because everybody did and because it was risky not to. It was not for him to inquire into the Weltanschauung of his union, nor did the union bureaucrats trouble themselves about the tenets or feelings of the members. 
Their first aim was to herd as many workers as possible into the ranks of their unions. These millions of organized workers were forced to pay lip service to the creeds of their parties, to vote for their candidates at the elections for parliament and for union offices, to subscribe to the party's newspapers, and to avoid open criticism of the party's policy. But daily experience nonetheless brought them the evidence that something was wrong with their parties. Every day, they learned about new trade barriers established by foreign nations against German manufacturers, that is, against the products of their own toil and trouble. As the trade unions, with few exceptions, were not prepared to agree to wage cuts, every new trade barrier immediately resulted in increased unemployment. The workers lost confidence in the Marxians and in the center. They became aware that these men did not know how to deal with their problems and that all they did was to indict capitalism. German labor was radically hostile to capitalism, but it found denunciation of capitalism unsatisfactory in this instance. The workers could not expect production to keep up if export sales dropped. They therefore became interested in the Nazi arguments. Such happenings, said the Nazis, are the drawbacks of our unfortunate dependence on foreign markets and the whims of foreign governments. Germany is doomed if it does not succeed in conquering more space and in attaining self-sufficiency. All endeavors to improve the conditions of labor are vain as long as we are compelled to serve as wage slaves for foreign capitalists. Such words impressed the workers. They did not abandon either the trade unions or the party clubs, since this would have had very serious consequences for them. They still voted the Social Democrat, the Communist, or the Catholic ticket out of fear and inertia. But they became indifferent both to Marxian and to Catholic Socialism and began to sympathize with National Socialism. Years before 1933, the ranks of German trade unions were already full of people secretly sympathizing with Nazism. Thus, German labor was not greatly disturbed when the Nazis finally forcibly incorporated all trade union members into their labor front. They turned toward Nazism because the Nazis had a program dealing with their most urgent problem, foreign trade barriers. The other parties lacked such a program. The removal of the unpopular trade union bureaucrats pleased the workers no less than the humiliations inflicted by the Nazis on the entrepreneurs and executives. The bosses were reduced to the rank of shop managers. They had to bow to the almighty party chiefs. The workers exulted over the misfortunes of their employers. It was their triumph when their boss, foaming with rage, was forced to march in their ranks on state holiday parades. It was balm for their hearts. Then came the rearmament boom. There were no more unemployed. Very soon, there was a shortage of labor. The Nazis succeeded in solving a problem that the Social Democrats had been unable to master. Labor became enthusiastic. It is highly probable that the workers are now fully aware of the dark side of the picture. They are disillusioned. The Nazis have not led them into the land of milk and honey. In the desert of the ration cards, the seeds of communism are thriving. On the day of the defeat, the labor front will collapse, as the Marxian and the Catholic trade unions did in 1933. Part 7. The Foreign Critics of Nazism Hitler and his clique conquered Germany by brutal violence, by murder and crime. But the doctrines of Nazism had got hold of the German mind long before then. Persuasion, not violence, had converted the immense majority of the nation to the tenets of militant nationalism. If Hitler had not succeeded in winning the race for dictatorship, somebody else would have won it. There were plenty of candidates whom he had to eclipse. Kopp, General Ludendorff, Captain Erhardt, Major Pabst, 
Horstad Escherich, Strasser, and many more. Hitler had no inhibitions and thus he defeated his better instructed or more scrupulous competitors. Nazism conquered Germany because it never encountered any adequate intellectual resistance. It would have conquered the whole world if, after the fall of France, Great Britain and the United States had not begun to fight it seriously. The contemporary criticism of the Nazi program failed to serve the purpose. People were busy dealing with the mere accessories of the Nazi doctrine. They never entered into a full discussion of the essence of National Socialist teachings. The reason is obvious. The fundamental tenets of the Nazi ideology do not differ from the generally accepted social and economic ideologies. The difference concerns only the application of these ideologies to the special problems of Germany. These are the dogmas of present-day unorthodox orthodoxy. Number 1. Capitalism is an unfair system of exploitation. It injures the immense majority for the benefit of a small minority. Private ownership of the means of production hinders the full utilization of natural resources and of technical improvements. Profits and interest are tributes which the masses are forced to pay to a class of idle parasites. Capitalism is the cause of poverty and must result in war. Number two, it is therefore the foremost duty of popular government to substitute government control of business for the management of capitalists and entrepreneurs. Number three, price ceilings and minimum wage rates, whether directly enforced by the administration or indirectly by giving a free hand to trade unions, are an adequate means for improving the lot of the consumers and permanently raising the standard of living of all wage earners. They are steps on the way toward entirely emancipating the masses by the final establishment of socialism from the yoke of capital. We may note, incidentally, that Marx in his later years violently opposed these propositions. Present-day Marxism, however, endorses them fully. Number four, easy money policy, i.e. credit expansion, is a useful tool of lightening the burdens imposed by capital upon the masses and making a country more prosperous. It has nothing to do with the periodical recurrence of economic depression. Economic crises are an evil inherent in unhampered capitalism. Number five, all those who deny the foregoing statements and assert that capitalism best serves the masses and that the only effective method of permanently improving the economic conditions of all strata of society is progressive accumulation of new capital are ill-intentioned, narrow-minded apologists of the selfish class interests of the exploiters. A return to laissez-faire, free trade, the gold standard, and economic freedom is out of the question. Mankind will fortunately never go back to the ideas and policies of the 19th century and the Victorian age. Let us note incidentally that both Marxism and trade unionism have the fairest claim to the epithets 19th century and Victorian. Number six, the advantage derived from foreign trade lies exclusively in exporting. Imports are bad and should be prevented as much as possible. The happiest situation in which a nation can find itself is where it need not depend on any imports from abroad. The progressives, it is true, are not enthusiastic about this dogma, and sometimes even reject it as a nationalist error. However, their political acts are thoroughly dictated by it. With regard to these dogmas, there is no difference between present-day British liberals and the British Labour Party on the one hand and the Nazis on the other. It does not matter that the British call these principles an outgrowth of liberalism and economic democracy, while the Germans, on better grounds, call them anti-liberal and anti-democratic. It is not much more important that in Germany nobody is free to utter dissenting views, while in Great Britain a dissenter is only laughed at as a fool and slighted. We do not need to deal here with the refutation of the fallacies in these six dogmas. This is the task of treatises expounding the basic problems of economic theory. It is a task that has already been fulfilled. 
We need only emphasize that whoever lacks the courage or the insight to attack these premises is not in a position to find fault with the conclusions drawn from them by the Nazis. The Nazis also desire government control of business. They also seek autarky for their own nation. The distinctive mark of their policies is that they refuse to acquiesce in the disadvantages which the acceptance of the same system by other nations would impose upon them. They are not prepared to be forever imprisoned, as they say, within a comparatively overpopulated area, in which the productivity of labor is lower than in other countries. Both the German and foreign adversaries of Nazism were defeated in the intellectual battle against it because they were enmeshed in the same intransigent and intolerant dogmatism. The British left and the American progressives want all-round control of business for their own countries. They admire the Soviet methods of economic management. In rejecting German totalitarianism, they contradict themselves. The German intellectuals saw in Great Britain's abandonment of free trade and of the gold standard a proof of the superiority of German doctrines and methods. Now they see that the Anglo-Saxons imitate their own system of economic management in nearly every respect. They hear eminent citizens of these countries declare that their nations will cling to these policies in the post-war period. Why should not the Nazis be convinced in the face of all this that they were the pioneers of a new and better economic and social order? The chiefs of the Nazi party and their stormtroopers are sadistic gangsters. But the German intellectuals and German labor tolerated their rule because they agreed with the basic social, economic, and political doctrines of Nazism. Whoever wanted to fight Nazism as such before the outbreak of the present war and in order to avoid it, and not merely to oust the scum which happens to hold office in present-day Germany, would have had to change the minds of the German people. This was beyond the power of the supporters of Etaism. It is useless to search the Nazi doctrines for contradictions and inconsistencies. They are indeed self-contradictory and inconsistent, but their basic faults are those common to all brands of present-day Etaism. One of the most common objections raised against the Nazis concerned the alleged inconsistency of their population policy. It is contradictory, people used to say, to complain, on the one hand, of the comparative overpopulation of Germany, and ask for more Lebensraum, and to try, on the other hand, to increase the birth rate. Yet there was in the eyes of the Nazis no inconsistency in these attitudes. The only remedy for the evil of overpopulation that they knew was provided by the fact that the Germans were numerous enough to wage a war for more space while the small nations laboring under the same evil of comparative overpopulation were too weak to save themselves. The more soldiers Germany could levy, the easier it would be to free the nation from the curse of overpopulation. The underlying doctrine was faulty, but one who did not attack the whole doctrine could not convincingly find fault with the endeavors to rear as much cannon fodder as possible. One reason why the objections raised to the despotism of the Nazis and the atrocities they committed had so little effect is that many of the critics themselves were inclined to excuse the Soviet methods. Hence, the German nationalists could claim that their adversaries, both German and foreign, were being unfair to the Nazis in denouncing them for practices which they judged more mildly in the Russians. And they called it cant and hypocrisy when the Anglo-Saxons attacked their racial doctrines. Do the British and the Americans themselves, they retorted, observe the principle of equality of all races? The foreign critics condemned the Nazi system as capitalist. In this age of fanatical anti-capitalism and enthusiastic support of socialism, no reproach seems to discredit a government more thoroughly in the eyes of fashionable opinion than the qualification pro-capitalist. But this is one charge against the Nazis that is unfounded. 
We have seen in a previous chapter that the Zwangswirtschaft is a socialist system of all-round government control of business. It is true that there are still profits in Germany. Some enterprises even make much higher profits than in the last years of the Weimar regime. But the significance of this fact is quite different from what the critics believe. There is strict control of private spending. No German capitalist or entrepreneur, shop manager, or anyone else is free to spend more money on his consumption than the government considers adequate to his rank and position in the service of the nation. The surplus must be deposited with the banks or invested in domestic bonds or in the stock of German corporations wholly controlled by the government. Hoarding of money or banknotes is strictly forbidden and punished as high treason. Even before the war, there were no imports of luxury goods from abroad, and their domestic production has long since been discontinued. Nobody is free to buy more food and clothing than the allotted ration. Rents are frozen. Furniture and all other goods are unattainable. Travel abroad is permitted only on government errands. Until a short time ago, a limited amount of foreign exchange was allotted to tourists who wanted to spend a holiday in Switzerland or Italy. The Nazi government was anxious not to arouse the anger of its then-Italian friends by preventing its citizens from visiting Italy. The case with Switzerland was different. The Swiss government, yielding to the demands of one of the most important branches of its economic system, insisted that a part of the payment for German exports to Switzerland should be balanced by the outlays of German tourists. As the total amount of German exports to Switzerland and of Swiss exports to Germany was fixed by a bilateral exchange agreement, it was of no concern to Germany how the Swiss distributed the surplus. The sum allotted to German tourists traveling in Switzerland was deducted from that destined for the repayment of German debts to Swiss banks. Thus, the stockholders of the Swiss banks paid the expenses incurred by German tourists. German corporations are not free to distribute their profits to the shareholders. The amount of the dividends is strictly limited according to a highly complicated legal technique. It has been asserted that this does not constitute a serious check as the corporations are free to water the stock. This is an error. They are free to increase their nominal stock only out of profits made and declared and taxed as such in previous years, but not distributed to the shareholders. As all private consumption is strictly limited and controlled by the government, and as all unconsumed income must be invested, which means virtually lent to the government, high profits are nothing but a subtle method of taxation. The consumer has to pay high prices and business is nominally profitable. But the greater the profits are, the more the government funds are swelled. The government gets the money either as taxes or as loans. And everybody must be aware that these loans will one day be repudiated. For many years, German business has not been in a position to replace its equipment. At the end of the war, the assets of corporations and private firms will consist mainly of worn-out machinery and various doubtful claims against the government. Warring Germany lives on its capital stock, i.e. on the capital nominally and seemingly owned by its capitalists. The Nazis interpret the attitudes of other nations with regard to the problem of raw materials as an acknowledgement of the fairness of their own claims. The League of Nations has established that the present state of affairs is unsatisfactory and hurts the interests of those nations calling themselves have-nots. The fourth point of the Atlantic Declaration of August 14, 1941, in which the chiefs of the governments of the United Kingdom and of the United States made known certain common principles in the national policies of their respective countries, on which they base their hope for a better future of the world, reads as follows. They will endeavor, with due respect for their existing obligations, to further the enjoyment by all states, great or small, victor or vanquished, of access on equal terms, 
to the trade and to the raw materials of the world, which are needed for their economic prosperity. The Roman Catholic Church is, in a world war, above the fighting parties. There are Catholics in both camps. The Pope is in a position to view the conflict with impartiality. It was therefore in the eyes of the Nazis very significant when the Pope discovered the root causes of the war in that cold and calculating egoism which tends to hoard the economic resources and materials, destined for the use of all to such an extent that the nations less favored by nature are not permitted access to them, and further declared that he saw, admitted the necessity of a participation of all in the natural riches of the earth, even on the part of those nations which in the fulfillment of this principle belong to the category of givers and not that of receivers. Well, say the Nazis, everybody admits that our grievances are reasonable. And, they add, in this world which seeks autarky of totalitarian nations, the only way to redress them is to redistribute territorial sovereignty. It was often contended that the dangers of autarky which the Nazis feared were still far away, that Germany could still expand its export trade, and that its per capita income continued to increase. Such objections did not impress the Germans. They wanted to realize economic quality, i.e. a productivity of German labor as high as that of any other nation. The wage earners of the Anglo-Saxon countries, too, they objected, enjoy today a much higher standard of living than in the past. Nevertheless, the progressives do not consider this fact a justification of capitalism, but approve of labor's claims for higher wages and the abolition of the wages system. It is unfair, said the Nazis, to object to the German claims when nobody objects to those of Anglo-Saxon labor. The weakest argument brought forward against the Nazi doctrine was the pacifist slogan, War does not settle anything. For it cannot be denied that the present state of territorial sovereignty and political organization is the outcome of wars fought in the past. The sword freed France from the rule of the English kings and made it an independent nation converted America and Australia into white men's countries, and secured the autonomy of the American republics. Bloody battles made France and Belgium predominantly Catholic and northern Germany, and the Netherlands predominantly Protestant. Civil war safeguarded the unity of the United States and of Switzerland. Two efficacious and irrefutable objections could well have been raised against the plans of German aggression. One is that the Germans themselves had contributed as much as they could to the state of affairs that they considered so deplorable. The other is that war is incompatible with the international division of labor. But progressives and nationalists were not in a position to challenge Nazism on these grounds. They were not themselves concerned with the maintenance of the international division of labor. They advocated government control of business, which must necessarily lead toward protectionism and finally toward autarky. The fallacious doctrines of Nazism cannot withstand the criticism of sound economics, today disparaged as orthodox. But whoever clings to the dogmas of popular neo-mercantilism and advocates government control of business is impotent to refute them. Fabian and Keynesian unorthodoxy resulted in a confused acceptance of the tenets of Nazism. Its application in practical policies frustrated all endeavors to form a common front of all nations menaced by the aspirations of Nazism. Section 10. Nazism as a World Problem Part 1. The Scope and Limitations of History It is the function of historical research to trace historical events back to their sources. The historian has to demonstrate how any historical situation developed out of previously existing, natural and social, conditions, and how the actions of men and occurrences beyond human control transformed any previous state of affairs, 
into the subsequent state of affairs. This analytical retrospection cannot be carried out indefinitely. Sooner or later, history reaches a point at which its methods of interpretation are of no further use. Then the historian can do nothing more than establish that a factor was operative which brought to pass what resulted. The usual way of putting this into words is to speak of individuality or uniqueness. The same is essentially true of the natural sciences. They too inevitably sooner or later reach a point which they must simply take as a datum of experience as the given. Their scope is to interpret, or as people once preferred to say, to explain, occurring changes as the outcome of forces working throughout the universe. They trace one fact back to previous facts. They show us that the A, the B, and the N are the outcome of the X. But there are Xs which, at least in our day, cannot be traced back to other sources. Coming generations may succeed in pushing the limits of our knowledge further back. But there cannot be any doubt that there will always remain some items which cannot be traced back to others. The human mind is not even capable of consistently grasping the meaning of such a concept as the ultimate cause of all things. Natural science will never go further than the establishment of some ultimate factors which cannot be analyzed and traced back to their sources, springs, or causes. The term individuality as used by the historians means, here we are confronted with a factor which cannot be traced back to other factors. It does not provide an interpretation or explanation. It establishes, on the contrary, that we have to deal with an inexplicable datum of historical experience. Why did Caesar cross the Rubicon? The historians can provide us with various motives which might have influenced Caesar's decision, but they cannot deny that another decision would have been possible. Perhaps Cicero or Brutus, faced with a similar situation, would have behaved differently. The only correct answer is, he crossed the Rubicon because he was Caesar. It is misleading to explain a man's or a group's behavior by referring to their character. The concept of character is tantamount to the concept of individuality. What we call a man's or a group's character is the totality of our knowledge about their conduct. If they had behaved otherwise than as they actually did, our notions of their character would be different. It is a mistake to explain the fact that Napoleon made himself emperor and tried in a rather foolish way to break into the circle of the old European dynasties as a result of his character. If he had not substituted emperorship for his lifelong consular dignity, and he had not married an archduchess, we would, in the same way, have had to say that this was a peculiar mark of his character. The reference to character explains no more than does the famous explanation of the soporific event of opium by its virtus dormitiva qui facit sensus asipira. Therefore, it is vain to expect any help from psychology, whether individual or mass psychology. Psychology does not lead us beyond the limits fixed in the concept of individuality. It does not explain why being crossed in love turns some people toward dipsomania, others to suicide, others to writing clumsy verses, while it inspired Petrarch and Goethe to immortal poems and Beethoven to divine music. The classification of men into various character types is not a very profitable expedient. Men are classified according to their conduct, and then people believe they have provided an explanation in deducing conduct from their classification. Moreover, every individual or group has traits which do not fit into the Procrustean bed of classification. Neither can physiology solve the problem. Physiology cannot explain how external factors and circumstances bring about definite ideas and actions within human consciousness. 
Even if we were to know everything about the operation of brain cells and nerves, we should be at a loss to explain, otherwise than by referring to individuality, why identical environmental facts result with different individuals, and with the same individuals at various times, in diverse ideas and actions. The sight of the falling apple led Newton to the laws of gravitation. Why not other people before him? Why does one man succeed in the correct solution of an equation, whereas other people do not? In what does the physiological process resulting in the mathematically correct solution of a problem differ from that leading to an incorrect solution? Why did the same problems of locomotion in snow-covered mountains lead the Norwegians to the invention of skiing, while the inhabitants of the Alps did not have this inspiration? No historical research can avoid reference to the concept of individuality. Neither biography, dealing with the life of only one personality, nor the history of peoples and nations can push its analysis further than a point where the last statement is individuality. Part 2. The Fallacy of the Concept of National Character The main deficiency of the character concept when applied as an explanation is in the permanency attributed to it. The individual or the group is conceived as equipped with a stable character, of which all its ideas and actions are the outcome. The criminal is not a criminal because he has committed a crime. He commits the crime because he is a criminal. Therefore, the fact that a man has once committed a crime is the proof that he is a criminal and makes it plausible that he is guilty of any other crime ascribed to him. This doctrine has deeply influenced penal procedure in continental Europe. The state is eager to prove that the defendant has already committed other crimes in his previous career. The defense in the same way is eager to whitewash the defendant by demonstrating that his past life was free from fault. Yet, a man who has already committed several murders may be guiltless of the murder for which he is standing trial, whereas a man after 60 years of impeccable behavior may have committed an abominable crime. The concept of a nation's character is a generalization of features discovered in various individuals. It is mainly the result of precipitate and ill-considered induction from an insufficient number of ill-assorted samples. In the old days, the German citizens of Bohemia met few Czechs other than cooks and maids. Hence, they concluded that the Czechs are servile, submissive, and cringing. A student of Czech political and religious history may rather qualify them as rebellious and lovers of freedom. But what entitles us to search for common characteristics of the various individuals of an aggregate which includes, on the one hand, John Hus and Ziska of Troknov, and on the other, footmen and chambermaids. The criterion applied in the formation of the class concept, Czechs, is the use of the Czech language. To assume that all members of a linguistic group must have some other marks in common is a petitio principii. The most popular interpretation of the ascendancy of Nazism explains it as an outcome of the German national character. The holders of this theory search German literature and history for texts, quotations, and deeds indicating aggressiveness, rapacity, and lust for conquest. From these scraps of knowledge, they deduce the German national character, and from the character so established, the rise of Nazism. It is very easy indeed to assemble many facts of German history and many quotations from German authors that can be used to demonstrate an inherent German propensity toward aggression. But it is no less easy to discover the same characteristics in the history and literature of other linguistic groups, example Italian, French, and English. Germany has never had more excellent and eloquent panegyrists of military heroism and war than Carlyle and Ruskin were. Never a chauvinist poet and writer more eminent than Kipling. 
Never more ruthless and Machiavellian conquerors than Warren Hastings and Lord Clive. Never a more brutal soldier than Hodson of Hodson's Horse. Very often the quotations are taken out of context and thus entirely distorted. In the First World War, British propagandists used to cite over and over again a few lines from Goethe's Faust, but they omitted to mention that the character into whose mouth these words are put, Euphorion, is a counterpart of Lord Byron, whom Goethe admired more than any other contemporary poet, except for Schiller. Although Byron's Romanticism did not appeal to his own classicism, these verses do not at all express Goethe's own tenets. Faust concludes with a glorification of productive work. Its guiding idea is that only the self-satisfaction received from rendering useful services to his fellow men can make a man happy. It is a panegyric upon peace, freedom, and, as the Nazis scornfully call it, bourgeois security. Euphorion Byron represents a different ideal, the restless craving for ends inaccessible to human beings, the yearning for adventure, combat, and glory which results in failure and in premature death. It is nonsensical to quote as proof of Germany's innate militarism the verses in which Euphorion answers his parents' commendation of peace with passionate praise of war and victory. There have been in Germany, as in all other nations, eulogists of aggression, war, and conquests. But there have been other Germans too. The greatest are not to be found in the ranks of those glorifying tyranny and German world hegemony are Heinrich von Kleist, Richard Wagner, and Detlev von Lilienkron more representative of the national character than Kant, Goethe, Schiller, Mozart, and Beethoven. The idea of a nation's character is obviously arbitrary. It is derived from a judgment which omits all unpleasant facts contradicting the preconceived dogma. It is not permissible to apply statistical procedures in the establishment of a nation's character. The question is not to find out how the Germans would have voted in the past if they had had to decide by plebiscites what course their country's policy should follow. Even if such an investigation could be successfully undertaken, its results would not provide us with any information helpful in our case. The political situation of each period has its unique form, its individuality. We are not justified in drawing from past events conclusions applicable to the present day. It would not clear up our problems if we knew whether the majority of the Goths approved of the invasion of the Roman Empire, or whether the majority of the 12th century Germans favored Barbarossa's treatment of the Milanese. The present situation has too little in common with those of the past. The usual method applied is to pick out some famous personalities of a nation's past and present, and to take their opinions and actions as representative of a whole nation. This would be a faulty method even if people were conscientious enough to confront these arbitrarily chosen men with others who held contrary ideas and behaved in a different way. It is not permissible to attach the same representative importance to the tenets of Kant and to those of a dull professor of philosophy. It is contradictory, on the other hand, to consider only famous men as representative while ignoring the rest, and, on the other hand, to treat even these, arbitrarily selected as famous, as constituting an undifferentiated group of equals. One man of this group may stand out as much from the rest as the whole group does from the entire nation. Hundreds of poetasters and rhymesters do not outweigh the unique Goethe. It is correct to speak of a nation's mentality at a certain historical epoch if we conceive by this term the mentality of the majority. But it is subject to change. The German mentality has not been the same in the age of medieval feudalism, in the age of the Reformation, in that of the Enlightenment, 
in the days of liberalism and in our time. It is probable that today about 80% of all German-speaking Europeans are Nazis. If we leave out the Jews, the Austrians, and the German-speaking Swiss, we might say that more than 90% of the Germans support Hitler's fight for world hegemony. But this cannot be explained by referring to the characterization of the contemporary Germans given by Tacitus. Such an explanation is no better than the Nazis' method of proving the alleged barbarism of the present-day Anglo-Saxons by citing the execution of Jeanne d'Arc, the wholesale extermination of the Aborigines of Tasmania by the British settlers, and the cruelties described in Uncle Tom's Cabin. There is no such thing as a stable national character. It is a vicious circle to explain Nazism by alleging that the Germans have an inherent tendency to adopt the tenets of Nazism. Part 3. Germany's Rubicon This book has tried to clarify the rise of Nazism, to show how, out of the conditions of modern industrialism and of present-day socioeconomic doctrines and policies, there developed a situation in which the immense majority of the German people saw no means to avoid disaster and to improve their lot but those indicated by the program of the Nazi party. On the one hand, they saw in an age rapidly moving toward economic autarky, a dark future for a nation which can neither feed nor clothe its citizens out of its domestic natural resources. On the other hand, they believed that they were powerful enough to avoid this calamity by conquering a sufficient amount of Lebensraum. This explanation of the ascendancy of Nazism goes as far as any historical investigation can possibly go. It must stop at the points which limit our endeavors to study historical events. It has to take recourse to the concepts of individuality and non-repeatable uniqueness. For Nazism was not the only conceivable means of dealing with the problems that concern present-day Germany. There was and there is another solution. Free trade. Of course, the adoption of free trade principles would require the abandonment of interventionism and socialism and the establishment of an unhampered market economy. But why should this be brushed aside as out of the question? Why did the Germans fail to realize the futility of interventionism and the impracticability of socialism? It is neither a sufficient explanation nor a valid excuse to say that all other nations also cling to etaism and to economic nationalism. Germany was threatened sooner and in a worse way by the effects of the trend toward autarky. The problem was first and for some time a German one, although it later concerned other great nations. Germany was forced to find a solution. Why did it choose Nazism and not liberalism, war and not peace? If 40 to 60 years ago Germany had adopted unconditional free trade, Great Britain, its crown colonies, British India and some smaller European nations would not have abandoned free trade either. The cause of free trade would have received a mighty propulsion. The course of world affairs would have been different. The further progress of protectionism, monetary particularism, and discrimination against foreign labor and foreign capital would have been checked. The tide would have been stemmed. It is not unlikely that other countries would have imitated the example set by Germany. At any rate, Germany's prosperity would not have been menaced by the further advance of other nations toward autarky. But the Germans did not even consider this alternative. The handful of men advocating unconditional freedom both in foreign and in domestic trade were laughed at as fools, despised as reactionaries, silenced by threats. In the 90s of the past century, Germany was already almost unanimous in its support of policies, which were designed as the preparation for the impending war for more space, the war for world hegemony. The Nazis defeated all the other socialist, nationalist, and interventionist parties within Germany 
because they were not afraid to follow their program to its ultimate logical conclusion. People were confident that they meant it serious. They offered a radical solution for the problem of foreign trade, and they outdid by this radicalism the other parties which advocated essentially the same solution but with moderation and in a vacillating and halfway manner. It was the same with other problems. There were, for instance, the territorial clauses of the Treaty of Versailles. All German parties without exception deplored these provisions as the most infamous inflicted upon Germany and as one of the main causes of its economic distress. The communists did not mention these clauses especially, but their disparagement of the whole treaty, this most shameful product of capitalist imperialism, as they said, included those clauses. It was no different with the pacifists, but only the Nazis were sincere and consistent enough to proclaim that there was no hope of reacquiring the lost provinces except by a victorious war. Thus, they alone seemed to offer a remedy for an alleged evil that everyone decried. But it is impossible to explain why, in all these critical years, the Germans never seriously considered the other alternative to nationalism, liberalism and free trade. The fateful decision against free trade and peace and in favor of nationalism and war is not open to explanation. In a unique, non-repeatable historical situation, the German nation chose war and rejected the peaceful solution. This was an individual historical event which cannot be further analyzed or explained. They crossed their Rubicon. We may say they acted in this way because they were Germans of the age of nationalism, but that explains nothing. The American Civil War would have been avoided if the Northerners had acquiesced in the secession. The American Revolution would not have occurred if the colonists had not been ready to wage a risky war for their independence. These characteristics of the Americans of 1776 and 1861 are ultimate facts, individual cases of historical events. We cannot explain why some people faced with an alternative choose A and not B. Of course, the method chosen by Germany hurts not only every other people, but the Germans as well. The Germans will not attain the end sought. The Lebensraum Wars will prove disastrous for them, but we do not know why the Americans, in the two cases mentioned above, made of their option a use which later events proved to be beneficial to them and to Western civilization, while the Germans chose the road to catastrophe. The same thing can be said about the conduct of the nations menaced by the German plans for aggression. The present state of world affairs is due not only to the malicious aspirations of German nationalists, but no less to the failure of the rest of the world to thwart them by appropriate measures. If the victims had substituted a close political and military cooperation for their mutual rivalries, Germany would have been forced to abandon its plans. Everybody knew that there was but one means to stop the aggressors and to prevent war. Collective security. Why did those menaced not adopt this scheme? Why did they prefer to cling to their policies of economic nationalism, which rendered vain all plans for the formation of a united front of all the peaceful nations? Why did they not abandon etatism in order to be able to abolish trade barriers? Why did they fail, like the Germans, to consider a return to laissez-faire? Etatism not only brought about a situation from which the German nationalists saw no way out but conquest, but also rendered futile all attempts to stop Germany in time. While the Germans were busy rearming for the day, Great Britain's main concern was to injure the interests of the French and of all other nations by barring their exports to Great Britain. Every nation was eager to use its sovereignty for the establishment of government control of business. This attitude necessarily implied a policy of insulation and economic nationalism. 
Every nation was waging a continuous economic war against every other nation. Every citizen glowed when the latest statistical report showed an increase in exports or a drop in imports. The Belgians were jubilant when the imports from the Netherlands diminished. The Dutch rejoiced when they succeeded in reducing the number of Dutch tourists visiting Belgium. The Swiss government subsidized French tourists traveling in Switzerland. The French government subsidized Swiss tourists traveling in France. The Polish government penalized its citizens for visiting foreign countries. If a Pole, a Czech, a Hungarian, or a Romanian wanted to consult a Viennese doctor or to send his son to a Swiss school, he had to apply for a special permit from the Office of Foreign Exchange Control. Everybody was convinced that this was lunacy, unless it was an act of his own government. Every day the newspapers reported examples of especially paradoxical measures of economic nationalism and criticized them severely. But no political party was prepared to demolish its own country's trade walls. Everybody was in favor of free trade for all other nations and of hyper-protectionism for his own. It did not seem to occur to anyone that free trade begins at home, for nearly everyone favored government control of business within his own country. For this attitude, too, history cannot provide any better explanation than recourse to the notion of individuality or uniqueness. Faced with a serious problem, the nations chose the way to disaster. Part 4. The Alternative The reality of Nazism faces everybody else with an alternative. They must smash Nazism or renounce their self-determination, i.e. their freedom and their very existence as human beings. If they yield, they will be slaves in a Nazi-dominated world. Their civilizations will perish. They will no longer have the freedom to choose to act and to live as they wish. They will simply have to obey. The Führer, the vicar of the German god, will become their supreme lord. If they do not acquiesce in such a state of affairs, they must fight desperately until the Nazi power is completely broken. There is no escape from this alternative. No third solution is available. A negotiated peace, the outcome of a stalemate, would not mean more than a temporary armistice. The Nazis will not abandon their plans for world hegemony. They will renew their assault. Nothing can stop these wars but the decisive victory or the final defeat of Nazism. It is a fatal mistake to look at this war as if it were one of the many wars fought in the last centuries between the countries of Western civilization. This is total war. It is not merely the destiny of a dynasty or a province or a country that is at stake, but the destiny of all nations and civilizations. Europe has not had to encounter a similar danger since the Tartar invasions in the 13th century. The lot of the defeated would be worse than that of the Greeks and the Serbs under the Turkish yoke. The Turks did not attempt to wipe out the vanquished Greeks and Serbs or to eradicate their language and their Christian creed. But the Nazis have other things in store for the conquered, extermination of those stubbornly resisting the master race, enslavement for those spontaneously yielding. In such a war, there cannot be any question of neutrality. The neutrals know very well what their fate will be if the Nazis conquer the United Nations. Their boasts that they are ready to fight for their independence if the Nazis attack them are in vain. In the event of a defeat of the United Nations, military action on the part of Switzerland or Sweden would not be more than a symbolic gesture. Under present conditions, neutrality is equal to a virtual support of Nazism. The same holds true for German-speaking men and women whether they are citizens of the Reich or not. There are citizens of the Reich who want to save face by asserting that they are not Nazis, but that they cannot help fighting in the ranks of their fellow citizens. 
It is a man's duty, they say, to be unconditionally loyal to his own linguistic group, whether its cause is right or wrong. It was this idea that turned some citizens of Austria, Switzerland, and various American countries either toward Nazism or toward what they believed to be an attitude of neutrality. But this doctrine of the unlimited solidarity of all members of a linguistic group is one of the main vices of nationalism. Nobody would be prepared to maintain such a principle of solidarity with regard to other groups. If the majority of the inhabitants of a town or a province decided to fight against the rest of the country, few would admit that the minority had a moral obligation to stand with a majority and to support its action. The issue in the struggle between Nazism and the rest of mankind is whether the community of people speaking the same language is the only legitimate social collectivity, or whether the supremacy must be assigned to the great society embracing all human beings. It is the fight of humanity against the claims of the intransigent particularism of a group. On better grounds than those on which the Nazis deny the Austrians and the Swiss the rights of moral and political autonomy, and of unrestricted sovereignty, the members of the human society must deny these rights to the various linguistic groups. No human cooperation and no lasting peace are conceivable if men put loyalty to any particular group above loyalty to humanity, moral law, and the principle of every individual's moral responsibility and autonomy. Renan was right in asserting that the problem is whether a man belongs to any particular group or to himself. The Nazis themselves realized clearly that under the conditions brought about by the international division of labor and the present state of industrialism, the isolation of nations or countries has become impossible. They do not want to withdraw from the world and to live on their own soil in splendid isolation. They do not want to destroy the great world-embracing society. They intend to organize it as an oligarchy. They alone are to rule in this oligarchy. The others are to obey and be their slaves. In such a struggle, whoever does not take part of those fighting against the Nazis furthers the cause of Nazism. This is true today of many pacifists and conscientious objectors. We may admire their noble motives and their candid intentions, but there is no doubt that their attitudes result in complicity with Nazism. Non-resistance and passive obedience are precisely what the Nazis need for the realization of their plans. Kant was right in asserting that the proof of a principle's moral value is whether or not it could be accepted, the pragmatist would say whether or not it would work, as a universal rule of conduct. The general acceptance of the principle of non-resistance and of obedience by the non-Nazis would destroy our civilization and reduce all non-Germans to slavery. There is but one means to save our civilization and to preserve the human dignity of men. It is to wipe out Nazism radically and pitilessly. Only after the total destruction of Nazism will the world be able to resume its endeavors to improve social organization and to build up the good society. The alternative is humanity or bestiality, peaceful human cooperation or totalitarian despotism. All plans for a third solution are illusory. Part 4. The Future of Western Civilization Section 11. The Delusions of World Planning Part 1. The Term Planning It is obvious that in this age of international division of labor, on the one hand, and of government interference with business on the other, unrestricted sovereignty for each nation must lead to economic nationalism, and through it to conflict. No one ventures to deny that economic nationalism and peace are incompatible. Therefore, all projects for the establishment of a more satisfactory state of world affairs include proposals for the substitution of some kind of international cooperation for the permanent antagonisms of economic nationalism. The most popular of these suggestions are labeled world planning or international planning, 
Planning is the patent medicine of our day. People are convinced that it will cure all the evils of domestic and foreign affairs. The prestige of the catchword planning is so great that the mere mention of it is considered a solution of all economic problems. In dealing with domestic affairs, planning is used as a synonym for socialism. Sometimes only the German pattern of socialism, Zwangswirtschaft, is called planning, while the term socialism proper is reserved for the Russian pattern. At any rate, planning always means planning by government authorities and execution of these plans by order of the government enforced by the police power. Planning is the antithesis of free enterprise and private ownership of the means of production. Planning and capitalism are utterly incompatible. Within a system of planning, production is conducted according to the government's orders, not according to the plans of capitalist entrepreneurs eager to profit by best serving the wants of consumers. It is a delusion to believe that planning and free enterprise can be reconciled. No compromise is possible between the two methods. Where the various enterprises are free to decide what to produce and how, there is capitalism. Where, on the other hand, the government authorities do the directing. There is socialist planning. Then the various firms are no longer capitalist enterprises. They are subordinate state organs bound to obey orders. The former entrepreneur becomes a shop manager like the Betreibsführer in Nazi Germany. The idea of planning by the organized groups of the various branches of production is very popular with some businessmen. This would amount to a substitution of compulsory cartels for free enterprise and competition. It would set aside capitalism and put entrepreneur syndicalism in its place, something like a replica of the medieval guild system. It would not bring socialism, but all-round monopoly with all its detrimental consequences. It would impair supply and put serious obstacles in the way of technical improvements. It would not preserve free enterprise, but give a privileged position to those who now own and operate plants, protecting them against the competition of efficient newcomers. It would mean a partial abdication of the state for the benefit of small groups of wealthy men. In reference to international affairs, the word planning sometimes means world socialism with a unitary world management. More often, however, it means the substitution of cooperative interventionism of all or many governments for the independent interventionism of every national government. We will have to deal with both of these conceptions. But before beginning an economic examination of the problems involved, it is desirable to make a few observations concerning the psychological roots of the popularity of the idea of planning. Part 2. The Dictatorship Complex Man is born an asocial and antisocial being. The newborn child is a savage. Egoism is his nature. Only the experience of life and the teachings of his parents, his brothers, sisters, playmates, and later of other people force him to acknowledge the advantages of social cooperation and accordingly to change his behavior. The savage thus turns towards civilization and citizenship. He learns that his will is not almighty, that he has to accommodate himself to others and adjust his actions to his social environment, and that the aims and the actions of other people are facts with which he must reckon. The neurotic lacks this ability to adapt himself to his environment. He is asocial. He never arrives at an adjustment with the facts. But whether he likes it or not, reality has its own way. It is beyond the neurotic's power to eliminate the will and the actions of his fellow men and to sweep everything before him. Thus he escapes into daydreams. The weakling, lacking the strength to get on with life and reality, indulges in reveries on dictatorship and on the power to subdue everybody else. The land of his dreams is the land in which his will alone decides. It is the realm in which he alone gives orders and all others obey. In this paradise, only that happens which he wants to happen. 
Everything is sound and reasonable, i.e. everything corresponds exactly to his ideas and wishes, is reasonable from the viewpoint of his reason. In the secrecy of these daydreams, the neurotic assigns to himself the role of the dictator. He himself is Caesar. When addressing his fellow citizens, he must be more modest. He depicts a dictatorship operated by somebody else. But this dictator is only his substitute and handyman. He acts only as the neurotic wants him to act. A daydreamer who refrained from this cautious restriction and proposed himself for the post of the dictator would risk being considered and treated as a lunatic. The psychiatrist would call this insanity megalomania. Nobody ever recommended a dictatorship aiming at ends other than those he himself approved. He who advocates dictatorship always advocates the unrestricted rule of his own will, although operated by an intermediary, an amanuensis. He wants a dictator made in his own image. Now we may grasp the causes of the popularity of planning. Everything that men do has to be planned, is the realization of plans. In this sense, all economic activity means planning. But those disparaging anarchic production and advocating planned economy are eager to eliminate the plans of everybody else. One will alone should have the right to will. One plan alone should be realized, namely the plan which the neurotic approves, the reasonable plan, the only plan. All obstacles should be removed. All other people's powers should be broken. Nothing should prevent the wretched neurotic from arranging the world according to his whims. Every means is right if it helps to raise the daydreamer's reason to the throne. The unanimous approval of planning by our contemporaries is only apparent. The supporter of planning disagree with regard to their plans. They agree only in the refutation of the plans brought forward by other people. Many popular fallacies concerning socialism are due to the mistaken belief that all friends of socialism advocate the same system. On the contrary, every socialist wants his own socialism, not the other fellows. He disputes the other socialists' right to call themselves socialists. In the eyes of Stalin, the Mensheviks and the Trotskyists are not socialists but traitors and vice versa. The Marxians call the Nazis supporters of capitalism. The Nazis call the Marxians supporters of Jewish capital. If a man says socialism or planning, he always has in view his own brand of socialism, his own plan. Thus, planning does not in fact mean preparedness to cooperate peacefully. It means conflict. Part 3. A World Government The establishment of a supranational world government is an old idea of pacifists. Such a world government is not needed for the maintenance of peace, however, if democracy and an unhampered market economy prevail everywhere. Under free capitalism and free trade, no special provisions or international institutions are required to safeguard peace. When there is no discrimination against foreigners, when everyone is free to live and to work where he likes, there are no longer causes for war. We may grant to the socialists that the same holds true for a socialist world state, provided the rulers of this state do not discriminate against any races, linguistic groups, or religions. But if, on the contrary, discrimination is applied, nothing can hinder the outbreak of wars if those who are injured by it believe that they are strong enough to sweep it away. All talk about the establishment of a world authority to prevent armed conflicts by the aid of a world police force is vain if favored groups or nations are not prepared to renounce their special privileges. If these privileges are to be maintained, a world state can be conceived only as the despotic rule of the privileged nations over the underprivileged. A democratic commonwealth of free nations is incompatible with any discrimination against large groups. A world parliament elected by the universal and equal suffrage of all adults would obviously never acquiesce in migration and trade barriers.
It is absurd to assume that the peoples of Asia would be prepared to tolerate the immigration laws of Australia and New Zealand, or that the predominantly industrial nations of Europe would agree to a policy of protectionism for the countries producing raw materials and foodstuffs. One should not allow oneself to be misled by the fact that, within individual countries, minority groups have succeeded in obtaining privileges beneficial to themselves and detrimental to the majority of the nation. We have dealt sufficiently with this phenomenon. Suppose we assume that the intricacy of the problem of the economic consequences of protectionism should so confuse the minds of the international lawmakers that the representatives of those injured by trade barriers were temporarily deluded into withdrawing their opposition. It is not very likely, but it could happen. But it is certain that a world parliament in which the representatives of those injured by the working of immigration barriers would form a compact majority would never consent to their permanent preservation. Such are the hard facts which render the ambitious plans for a democratic world state or world federation illusory. Under present conditions, it is utopian to indulge in such projects. We have already pointed out that the maintenance of migration barriers against totalitarian nations aiming at world conquest is indispensable to political and military defense. It would undoubtedly be wrong to assert that under present conditions, all kinds of migration barriers are the outcome of the misguided selfish class interests of labor. However, as against the Marxian doctrine of imperialism, almost generally accepted today, it is necessary to emphasize that the capitalists and entrepreneurs in their capacity as employers are not at all interested in the establishment of immigration barriers. Even if we were to agree to the fallacious doctrine that profits and interest come into existence because the entrepreneurs and capitalists withhold from the worker a part of what should rightly be paid to him, it is obvious that neither their short-run nor their long-run interests push the capitalists and entrepreneurs toward measures which raise domestic wage rates. Capital does not favor immigration barriers any more than it does social politics whose inextricable outcome is protectionism. If the selfish class interests of big business were supreme in the world, as the Marxians tell us, there would be no trade barriers. The owners of the most efficient plants are, under domestic economic freedom, not interested in protection. They would not ask for import duties were it not to compensate for the rising costs caused by pro-labor policies. As long as there are migration barriers, wage rates fixed on the domestic labor market remain at a higher level in those countries in which physical conditions for production are more favorable, as for instance in the United States, than in countries offering less favorable conditions. Tendencies toward an equalization of wage rate are absent when the migration of workers is prevented. Under free trade combined with migration barriers, there would prevail in the United States a tendency toward an expansion of those branches of production in which wages form a comparatively small part of the total costs of production. Those branches which require comparatively more labor, for instance the garment trade, would shrink. The resulting imports would bring about neither bad business nor unemployment. They would be compensated by an increase in the export of goods, which can be produced to the greatest advantage in this country. They would raise the standard of living both in America and abroad. While some enterprises are menaced by free trade, the interests of the bulk of industry and of the whole nation are not. The main argument advanced in favor of American protectionism, namely that protection is needed to maintain the nation's high standard of living, is fallacious. American wage rates are protected by the immigration laws. Pro-labor legislation and union tactics result in raising wage rates above the level secured by the immigration laws. The social gains brought about by such methods are only apparent. 
If there is no tariff, they result either in a drop in wage rates or in unemployment. Because the competitive power of domestic industries is weakened and because their sales drop concomitantly. If there is a protective tariff, they raise the prices of those commodities, which on account of the increase in domestic production costs require protection. Thus, the workers are hurt in their capacity as consumers. Investors would not suffer if protection were denied to domestic industries. They are free to invest in those countries in which conditions seem to offer the best chances of profit. Only the interests of the capital already invested in some branches of industry are favored by protection. The best evidence that big business does not derive an advantage from protection is provided by the fact that the biggest firms are operating plants in various countries. This is precisely the characteristic feature of large scale enterprises in this age of hyper protectionism. However, it would be more profitable for them, and of course at the same time more advantageous for consumers, if they were able to concentrate their entire production in plants located where conditions are most favorable. The real barrier to a full use of the productive forces is not, as the Marxians say, capital or capitalism, but those policies designed to reform and to check capitalism, which Marx branded as petty bourgeois. At the same time, these policies beget economic nationalism and substitute international conflict for peaceful cooperation under the international division of labor. Part 4 Plan Production The most realistic suggestions for world planning do not imply the establishment of a world state with a world parliament. They propose international agreements and regulations concerning production, foreign trade, currency and credit, and finally, foreign loans and investments. Planners sometimes describe their proposals as measures to combat poverty and want. The description is ambiguous. All economic policies are designed as remedies for poverty. Laissez-faire, too, is a method of abolishing poverty. Both history and economic theory have demonstrated that it has been more successful than any other policy. When the Japanese tried to expand their exports by underselling, they too sought to improve the lot of the Japanese masses. If economic nationalism in other countries had not hindered their endeavors, they would not only have attained this end, but would at the same time have raised the standards of living in the importing countries by providing their peoples with cheaper goods. It is necessary to emphasize that we are not dealing here with plans for international charity. It would relieve much suffering if some nations were prepared to aid the starving masses in the poor countries by gratuitously distributing food and clothing. But such actions are outside the scope of strictly economic considerations. They are modes of consumption, not of production of goods. We may first examine the proposals for regulating by international agreements of various governments or by the order of an international authority established for that task the production of various commodities. In the unhampered market, the prices are the guides and regulators of production. Goods are produced whenever they can be produced at a profit and are not produced when production involves a loss. A profitable industry tends to expand and an unprofitable one to shrink. An industry is unprofitable if the prices which the producer can obtain for the products do not cover the cost of the materials and labor required for their production. The consumers, therefore, determine by their buying or non-buying how much should be produced in every branch of industry. The amount of wheat produced is determined by the price which the consumers are ready to pay. An expansion of production beyond these limits would mean that factors of production, labor and capital, which in accordance with the demands of the consumers, are needed for the production of other commodities, would be diverted to the satisfaction of needs which the consumers consider less urgent. There prevails under unhampered capitalism a tendency to fix the amount of production in every field at a level at which the marginal producer or producers, i.e. those working under the least favorable conditions, 
neither make a profit nor incur a loss. Conditions being such, a regulation providing for the expansion of production of a commodity would be to no purpose if the government or international authority did not subsidize the sub-marginal producers in order to indemnify them for the losses incurred. But this would result in a corresponding restriction of the output of other commodities. Factors of production would be withdrawn from other branches to be used to expand the industry subsidized. The consumers who as taxpayers provide the means needed for the subsidies must restrict their consumption. They get smaller amounts of commodities of which they want to get more and have the opportunity to get more of other commodities for which their demand is less intense. The intervention of the government does not comply with their individual wishes. At bottom, they cannot consider its result an improvement of their condition. It is not in the power of governments to increase the supply of one commodity without a corresponding restriction in the supply of other commodities more urgently demanded by consumers. The authority may reduce the price of one commodity only by raising the prices of others. There are, of course, hundreds of millions of people who would be ready to consume more wheat, sugar, rubber, or tin if the prices were lower. The sales of every commodity increase with falling prices, but no government interference could make these commodities cheaper without raising the prices of other commodities, example meat, wool, or pulp. A general increase of production can be obtained only by the improvement of technical methods, by the accumulation of additional capital, and by a more efficient use of all factors of production. No planning, whether national or international, can affect a general lowering of real prices and redress the grievances of those for whom prices are too high. But most supporters of international planning have not the least intention of making raw materials and foodstuffs cheaper. On the contrary, what they really have in mind is raising prices and restricting supply. They see the best promise in the policies by which various governments, mainly in the last 20 years, have tried to put into effect restrictions and price increases for the benefit of special groups of producers and to the disadvantage of consumers. True, some of these schemes worked only for a short time and then collapsed, while many did not work at all. But this, according to the planners, was due to faults in technical execution. It is the essence of all their projects for post-war economic planning that they will so improve the methods applied as to make them succeed in the future. The dangerous fact is that while government is hampered in endeavors to make a commodity cheaper by intervention, it certainly has the power to make it more expensive. Governments have the power to create monopolies. They can force the consumers to pay monopoly prices, and they use this power lavishly. Nothing more disastrous could happen in the field of international economic relations than the realization of such plans. It would divide the nations into two groups, the exploiting and the exploited. Those restricting output and charging monopoly prices, and those forced to pay monopoly prices, it would engender insoluble conflicts of interest and inevitably result in new wars. The advocates of these schemes try to justify their suggestions by pointing out that conditions are very unsatisfactory for the producers of raw materials and foodstuffs. There is overproduction in these lines, they insist, and prices are so low that the producers lose money. The aim of their plans, they say, is to restore the profitability of production. It is true that a good deal of the production of these commodities does not pay. The trend toward autarky makes it harder for the industrial nations to sell their manufacturers abroad. Consequently, they have to restrict their buying of food and raw materials. Hence, it is necessary to retrench production of food and raw materials. The sub-marginal producers must go out of business. It is very unfortunate for them, but they can blame only the politicians of their own countries who have been responsible for the hyper-protectionist policies.
The only way to increase the sales of coffee and to make prices go up on a non-monopolized market is to buy more products from those countries in which coffee consumption would expand if their exports increased. But the pressure groups of the producers reject this solution and work for monopoly prices. They want to substitute monopolistic schemes for the operation of an unhampered market. On an unhampered market, the restriction in the output of raw materials and foodstuffs, made unavoidable by the protectionist policies of the producing countries, would take place automatically by the elimination of the submarginal producers, i.e. those for whom production does not pay at the market price. But the governments want to put into effect a much greater restriction for the sake of establishing monopoly prices. It is often said that the mechanism of the capitalist market no longer works under present conditions. The submarginal producers, the argument runs, do not go out of business. They continue production. Thus, prices go down to a level at which production no longer pays any producer. Therefore, government intervention is needed. The fact is true, but its interpretation and the conclusions drawn from the interpretation are entirely wrong. The reason the sub-marginal producers do not stop producing is that they are confident that government intervention will render their business profitable again. Their continued production gluts the market so that prices no longer cover the costs even of other producers. In this, as in so many other instances, the unsatisfactory effects of a previous government intervention are put forward as arguments for further intervention. Export sales drop because imports have been checked. Thus, the prices of export goods also drop. And then a demand arises for measures to make prices go up. Let us look once again at conditions in American agriculture. From its early colonial beginnings, there has been a continuous shifting of farming from less fertile to more fertile soil. There have always been submarginal farms on which production had to be discontinued because the competition of farmers producing at lower costs rendered them unprofitable. But with the New Deal, things took a new turn. The government interfered to the advantage of the submarginal farmers. All farmers had to submit to a proportional restriction of output. The government embarked upon a vast scheme for restricting output, raising prices, and subsidizing the farmers. In interfering for the special benefit of the submarginal farmer, it did so to the disadvantage of everyone consuming food and cotton and to the disadvantage of the taxpayer. It burdened the rest of the nation in order to pay bounties to some groups. Thus, it split the nation into conflicting classes a class of bounty receivers, and a more numerous class of bounty payers. This is the inevitable outcome of interventionism. The government can give to one group only what it takes from another. The domestic conflicts engendered by such policies are very serious indeed. But in the sphere of international relations, they are incomparably more disastrous. To the extent that monopoly prices are charged for food and raw materials, the grievances of the have-nots are justified. Such are the prospects of international or world planning in the sphere of production of raw materials and foodstuffs. It would be difficult to imagine any program whose realization would contribute more to engendering future conflicts and wars. Part 5. Foreign Trade Agreements In the age of laissez-faire, commercial treaties were considered a means of abolishing, step-by-step, trade barriers and all other measures of discrimination against foreigners. In those days, the most favored nation clause was a requisite of such treaties. Then the tide turned. With the ascendancy of interventionism, imports were deemed disastrous to a nation's economic prosperity. Discrimination against foreigners then came to be regarded as a good means for promoting the well-being of a country. The meaning of commercial treaties changed radically. Governments became eager to overreach one another in negotiations. A treaty was valued in proportion as it hindered the other nation's export trade and seemed to encourage one's own. 
most favored nation treatment gave way to hostile discrimination. In the long run, there cannot be such a thing as moderate protectionism. If people regard imports as an injury, they will not stop anywhere on the way toward autarky. Why tolerate an evil if there seems to be a way to get rid of it? Protectionism was bound to evolve into the license and quota system and into foreign exchange control. The ultimate goal of nearly every nation's foreign trade policy today is to prevent all imports. This means autarky. It is vain to expect anything from purely technical changes in the methods applied in international negotiations concerning foreign trade matters. If Atlantis is resolved to bar access to cloth manufactured abroad, it is of no importance whether its delegates must negotiate directly with the delegates of Thule or whether the subject can be dealt with by an international board in which other nations are represented. If Atlantis is prepared to admit a limited amount, a quota, of cloth from Thule, only because it wants to sell a corresponding quota of wheat to Thule, it is not likely to yield to a suggestion that it allot a part of its quota to other nations. If pressure or violence is applied in order to force Atlantis to change its import regulations so that greater quantities of cloth can be imported, it will take recourse to other methods of interventionism. Under a regime of government interference with business, a government has innumerable means at hand to penalize imports. They may be less easy to handle, but they can be made no less efficacious than tariffs, quotas, or the total prohibition of imports. Under present conditions, an international body for foreign trade planning would be an assembly of the delegates of governments attached to the ideas of hyper-protectionism. It is an illusion to assume that such an authority would be in a position to contribute anything genuine or lasting to the promotion of foreign trade. Some people cling to the belief that while universal free trade and a world-embracing division of labor are quite wrong, at least neighboring countries should enter into closer economic cooperation. Their economies could complement each other, it is argued, if they were prepared to form regional economic blocks. This doctrine, first developed by German nationalism, is fallacious. As a rule, neighboring countries offer similar natural conditions for production, especially in agriculture. Their economic systems are less likely to complement each other than to make them competitors on the world market. A customs union between Spain and Portugal, or between Bulgaria and Yugoslavia, or between Germany and Belgium would mean little. The main problems of foreign trade are not regional. The conditions for Spanish wine export could not be improved through free trade with Portugal, or vice versa. The same holds true for the production of machines in Germany and Belgium, and for agricultural production in Bulgaria and Yugoslavia. Part 6. Monetary Planning The gold standard was an international standard. It safeguarded the stability of foreign exchange rates. It was a corollary of free trade and of the international division of labor. Therefore, those who favored Ataism and radical protectionism disparaged it and advocated its abolition. Their campaign was successful. Even at the height of liberalism, governments did not give up trying to put easy money schemes into effect. Public opinion is not prepared to realize that interest is a market phenomenon, which cannot be abolished by government interference. Everybody values a loaf of bread available for today's consumption higher than a loaf which will be available only 10 or 100 years hence. As long as this is true, every economic activity must take it into account. Even a socialist management would be forced to pay full regard to it. In a market economy, the rate of interest has a tendency to correspond to the amount of this difference in the valuation of future goods and present goods. True, governments can reduce the rate of interest in the short run. They can issue additional paper money. They can open the way to credit expansion by the banks. 
they can thus create an artificial boom in the appearance of prosperity. But such a boom is bound to collapse sooner or later and to bring about a depression. The gold standard put a check on governmental plans for easy money. It was impossible to indulge in credit expansion and yet cling to the gold parity permanently fixed by law. Governments had to choose between the gold standard and their, in the long run, disastrous policy of credit expansion. The gold standard did not collapse. The governments destroyed it. It was as incompatible with Etaism as was free trade. The various governments went off the gold standard because they were eager to make domestic prices and wages rise above the world market level and because they wanted to stimulate exports and to hinder imports. Stability of foreign exchange rates was in their eyes a mischief, not a blessing. No international agreements or international planning is needed if a government wants to return to the gold standard. Every nation, whether rich or poor, powerful or feeble, can at any hour once again adopt the gold standard. The only condition required is the abandonment of an easy money policy and of the endeavors to combat imports by devaluation. The question involved here is not whether a nation should return to the particular gold parity that it had once established and has long since abandoned. Such a policy would of course now mean deflation. But every government is free to stabilize the existing exchange ratio between its national currency unit and gold and to keep this ratio stable. If there is no further credit expansion and no further inflation, the mechanism of the gold standard or of the gold exchange standard will work again. All governments, however, are firmly resolved not to relinquish inflation and credit expansion. They have all sold their souls to the devil of easy money. It is a great comfort to every administration to be able to make its citizens happy by spending, for public opinion will then attribute the resulting boom to its current rulers. The inevitable slump will occur later and burden their successors. It is the typical policy of Après nous le déluge. Lord Keynes, the champion of this policy, says, in the long run, we are all dead. But unfortunately, nearly all of us outlive the short run. We are destined to spend decades paying for the easy money orgy of a few years. Inflation is essentially anti-democratic. Democratic control is budgetary control. The government has but one source of revenue, taxes. No taxation is legal without parliamentary consent. But if the government has other sources of income, it can free itself from this control. If war becomes unavoidable, a genuinely democratic government is forced to tell the country the truth. It must say, we are compelled to fight for our independence. You citizens must carry the burden. You must pay higher taxes and therefore restrict your consumption. But if the ruling party does not want to imperil its popularity by heavy taxation, it takes recourse to inflation. The days are gone in which most persons in authority considered stability of foreign exchange rates to be an advantage. Devaluation of a country's currency has now become a regular means of restricting imports and expropriating foreign capital. It is one of the methods of economic nationalism. Few people now wish stable foreign exchange rates for their own countries. Their own country, as they see it, is fighting the trade barriers of other nations and the progressive devaluation of other nations' currency systems. Why should they venture to demolish their own trade walls? Some of the advocates of a new international currency believe that gold is not fit for the service precisely because it does put a check on credit expansion. Their idea is a universal paper money issued by an international world authority or an international bank of issue. The individual nations would be obliged to keep their local currencies at par with a world currency. The world authority alone would have the right to issue additional paper money or to authorize the expansion of credit by the World Bank. 
Thus, there would be stability of exchange rates between the various local currency systems, while the alleged blessings of inflation and credit expansion would be preserved. These plans fail, however, to take account of the crucial point. In every instance of inflation or credit expansion, there are two groups, that of the gainers and that of the losers. The creditors are the losers. It is their loss that is the profit of the debtors. But this is not all. The more fateful results of inflation derive from the fact that the rise in prices and wages which it causes occurs at different times and in different measure for various kinds of commodities and labor. Some classes of prices and wages rise more quickly and to a higher level than others. While inflation is underway, some people enjoy the benefit of higher prices on the goods and services they sell, while the prices of goods and services they buy have not yet risen at all or not to the same extent. These people profiteer by virtue of their fortunate position. For them, inflation is good business. Their gains are derived from the losses of other sections of the population. The losers are those in the unhappy situation of selling services and commodities whose prices have not yet risen at all or not in the same degree as the prices of things they buy for their own consumption. Two of the world's greatest philosophers, David Hume and John Stuart Mill, took pains to construct a scheme of inflationary changes in which the rise of prices and wages occurs at the same time and to the same extent for all commodities and services. They both failed in the endeavor. Modern monetary theory has provided us with the irrefutable demonstration that this disproportion and non-simultaneousness are inevitable features of every change in the quantity of money and credit. Under a system of world inflation or world credit expansion, every nation will be eager to belong to the class of gainers and not to that of the losers. It will ask for as much as possible of the additional quantity of paper, money, or credit for its own country. As no method could eliminate the inequalities mentioned above, and as no just principle for the distribution could be found, antagonisms would originate for which there would be no satisfactory solution. The populous poor nations of Asia would, for instance, advocate a per capita allotment, a procedure which would result in raising the prices of the raw materials they produce more quickly than those of the manufactured goods they buy. The richer nations would ask for a distribution according to national incomes or according to the total amount of business turnover or other similar standards. There is no hope that an agreement could be reached. Part 7. Planning International Capital Transactions The most amazing suggestions for international planning concern foreign loans or investments. They aim at a fair distribution of the capital available. Let us assume that American capitalists are prepared to grant a loan to the government of Venezuela or to invest money in a mine in Chile. What can an international body do in this case? Certainly, it will not have the power to force the American capitalists to lend the money to China rather than Venezuela, or to make the investment in Persian railroads instead of in Chilean mining. Or the American government might want, for various reasons, to subsidize the construction of motor roads in Mexico. Would the international authority order it to subsidize Greek textile plants instead? The international capital market has been disintegrated by economic nationalism, as has every other branch of economic internationalism. As investments and loans mean business and not charity, capitalists have lost the incentive to invest abroad. It will be hard work and it will take a good while to rebuild the international money and capital market. The interference of international authorities would not further these endeavors. It would be more likely to hinder them. Labor unions are likely to be hostile to capital export because they are eager to raise as far as possible the domestic marginal productivity of labor. 
Many governments put a general embargo on capital export. Foreign loans and investments are not permitted without a special government license. It is not probable that a change will occur immediately after the war. The poorer countries have done all that they could to promote the disintegration of the international capital market. Having inflicted as much harm as possible upon foreign capitalists and entrepreneurs, they are now anxious to get new foreign capital. However, today they meet only with reluctance. Capitalists shun unreliable debtors, and labor is unwilling to let capital emigrate. Section 12 Peace Schemes Part 1 Armament Control it would be an illusion to assume that any nation today is prepared to abandon protectionism. As the ruling parties favor government interference with business and national planning, they cannot demolish the trade barriers erected by their own countries. Thus, the incentives for war and conquest will not disappear. Every nation will have to be ready to repel aggression. War preparedness will be the only means of avoiding war. The old saying, si vis passam parabellum, will be true again. But even the abolition of trade barriers would not safeguard peace if migration barriers were not abolished too. The comparatively overpopulated nations will hardly acquiesce in a state of affairs, which results in a lower standard of living for them. On the other hand, it is obvious that no nation could, without imperiling its independence, open its frontiers to the citizens of totalitarian states aiming at conquest. Thus, we are forced to recognize that under present conditions, no scheme can eliminate the root causes of war. Prospects are not bright for more friendly international relations in the coming post-war period. It is even very doubtful whether it would be of any value at all to conclude a formal peace treaty with Germany after its defeat. Things have changed considerably in these last 30 years. International treaties in general, and especially peace treaties, are not what they used to be. This is not only the fault of those Germans who boast that treaties are but scraps of paper. The Allies, too, are not free from guilt. One of the worst blunders committed by the Allied powers in 1919 was the awkward arrangement of the peace negotiations. For centuries, it had been the custom to conduct peace negotiations in accordance with the usages of gentlemen. The delegates of both parties, the victorious and the defeated, would meet as civilized people meet to conduct business. The victors neither humiliated nor insulted the vanquished. They treated them as gentlemen and equals. They discussed their mutual problems in quiet and polite language. Such were the age-old rules and observances of diplomacy. The Allied powers broke this usage. They took delight in treating the German delegates with contempt and insults. The delegates were confined in the houses assigned to them. Guards were posted at the doors. No delegate had the right to leave the house. They were taken like prisoners from the railway station to their lodgings and from the lodgings to the meeting hall and back again in the same manner. When they entered the assembly room, the delegates of the victors answered their greetings with manifest disdain. No conversation between the German delegates and those of the victors was permitted. The Germans were handed a draft of the treaty and asked to return a written answer at a fixed date. This conduct was inexcusable. If the Allies did not wish to comply with the old established rule of international law requiring oral discussion between the delegates, they should have so informed the German government in advance. The Germans could have been spared the sending of a delegation of eminent men. For the procedure chosen by the Allies, a letter carrier would have sufficed as German delegate. But the successors of Talleyrand and Disraeli wished to enjoy their triumph to the full. Even if the Allies had behaved in a less offensive way, of course, the Treaty of Versailles would not have been essentially different. If a war results not in a stalemate but in one party's victory, the peace treaty is always dictated. The vanquished agree to terms which they would not accept under other circumstances. The essence of a peace treaty is compulsion. 
the defeated yield because they are not in a position to continue the fight. A contract between citizens can be annulled by the courts if one of the parties can prove that it was forced to sign under duress. But these notions of civil law do not apply to treaties between sovereign nations. Here, the law of the strongest still prevails. German propaganda has confused these obvious matters. The German nationalists maintained the thesis that the Treaty of Versailles was null because it was dictated and not spontaneously accepted by Germany. The cession of Alsace-Lorraine, of the Polish provinces, and of northern Schleswig is invalid, they said, because Germany surrendered to coercion. But they were inconsistent enough not to apply the same argument to the treaties by which Prussia had acquired, since 1740, its provinces of Silesia, West Prussia, Posen, Saxony, Rhineland, Westphalia, and Schleswig-Holstein. They neglected to mention the fact that Prussia had conquered and annexed without any treaty the Kingdom of Hanover, the Electorate of Hessen, the Duchy of Nassau, and the Republic of Frankfurt. Out of the twelve provinces which in 1914 formed the Kingdom of Prussia, nine were the spoils of successful wars between 1740 and 1866. Nor did the French in 1871 surrender Alsace-Lorraine to the Reich of their own free will. But you simply cannot argue with nationalists. The Germans are fully convinced that compulsion applied by them to other nations is fair and just, while compulsion applied to themselves is criminal. They will never acquiesce in a peace treaty that does not satisfy their appetite for more space. Whether they wage a new war of aggression will not depend on whether or not they have duly signed a peace treaty. It is vain to expect German nationalists to abide by the clauses of any treaty if conditions for a new assault seem propitious. A new war is unavoidable if the United Nations do not succeed in establishing a world order preventing the Germans and their allies from rearming. As long as there is economic nationalism, the United Nations will have to watch their ramparts day and night. The alliance of the victorious nations must be made lasting. Germany, Italy, and Japan must be totally disarmed. They must be deprived of the right to maintain armies, navies, or air fleets. A small police force, armed with rifles only, can be permitted to them. No kind of armament production should be tolerated. The guns and the ammunition for their policemen should be given to them by the United Nations. They should not be permitted to fly or build any planes. Commercial aviation in their country should be operated by foreign companies using foreign planes and employing foreign pilots. But the main means to hinder their rearmament should be a strict control of imports on the part of the United Nations. No imports should be permitted to the aggressor nations if they dedicate a part of their production to armaments or if they try to pile up stocks of imported raw materials. Such a control could easily be established. Should any country under the pretext of neutrality not be prepared to cooperate unconditionally in this scheme, it would be necessary to apply the same methods against this country as well. No ersatz production could frustrate the efficacy of this scheme. But if a change in technological possibilities imperils the working of the control system, it will be easy to force the country concerned to surrender. The prohibition of all food imports is a very effective weapon. This is not a very pleasant solution of the problem, but it is the only one that could work satisfactorily, provided the victorious nations maintain their alliance after the war. It is wrong to regard unilateral disarmament as unfair to the vanquished. If they do not plan new aggressions, they are not in need of arms. If they dream of new wars and are stopped by lack of arms, unilateral disarmament will favor them no less than the victorious nations. Even if they were to be deprived of the instruments to assault other peoples, their independence and their right to rule themselves would remain untouched. We must see conditions as they really are, not as we want them to be. If this war does not result in making it forever impossible to the Germans to wage a new war, 
they will try sooner or later to kindle a new conflict. As the victorious nations will not concede them what they want, world hegemony, they will not renounce their aggressive plans so long as the two strategical advantages of high population figures and interior lines remain unchanged. Nazism would be resurrected in a new form and under a new name. The peace settlement will further have to make special provisions for the punishment of those Nazis responsible for murdering and torturing innocent people. It will have to force the German nation to pay indemnities for the robberies committed by their rulers and mobs. This will not revive those murdered. It will be impossible after the passage of years to allot to every individual injured the fair amount of compensation. But it is of the greatest importance to hold the Germans answerable for all their acts. It would be absurd to allow their atrocities to go unpunished. The Nazis would consider it both a success and a justification of their conduct. They would think, after all, we have attained at least a partial success. We have reduced the population and the wealth of the inferior races. The main burden of this war falls on them, not on us. It would be scandalous indeed if the Germans suffer less from the consequences of their aggression than those assaulted. The Kellogg Pact outlawed war. Germany, Italy, Japan, Hungary, and Romania signed this document. If there was any meaning at all in this compact, then it was that aggressors are guilty of an illegal act and must bear the responsibility for it. Those citizens of these nations who did not openly oppose the dictators cannot plead their innocence. Every endeavor to make peace last will be futile unless people abandon spurious hero worship and cease to pity the defeated aggressor more than his victims. The cult of Napoleon I, almost universal in 19th century Europe, was an insult to common sense. He certainly had no excuse for the invasions of Spain and Russia. He was not a martyr. He enjoyed infinitely more comfort in his exile in St. Helena than the many thousands he had caused to be maimed and mutilated. It was an outrage that those responsible for the violation of Belgian neutrality in 1914 escaped punishment. It gave belated justification to their contemptuous description of treaties as scraps of waste paper. The attitude of public opinion, outside of France and Belgium, with regard to German reparations was a serious mistake. It encouraged German nationalism. These blunders must be avoided in the future. Part 2. A Critique of Some Other Schemes Proposed it is vain to expect that defeat will change the mentality of the defeated and make them peace-loving. They will cling to peace only if conditions are such that they cannot hope to conquer. Any schemes based on the assumption that any German party will immediately after the defeat renounce aggression and voluntarily embark upon a policy of sincere cooperation are futile. A German politician opposing war, if there were any real chance of success of a new aggression, would meet the fate of Erzberger and Rathenau. The Germans will one day recover their reason. They will remember that modern civilization was to some extent an achievement of their own. They will find the way back to the ideals of Schiller and Goethe. But this process of recovery must come from within. It cannot be forced upon Germany nor upon Italy or Japan, by a victorious army or by compulsory education on the part of foreign teachers. The Germans must learn that their aggressive nationalism is suicidal and that it has already inflicted irreparable evils upon themselves. They will have spontaneously to reject their present tenets and to adopt again all those ideas which they dismiss today as Christian, Western, and Jewish. Out of the midst of their own people, men will have to emerge who address them with the words once used by St. Remigius at the baptism of King Clovis, Adore what you used to burn, and burn what you used to adore. Some groups have hatched out a plan for the political dismemberment of Germany. They recall that Germany in the days of the Deutscher Bund, 1815-66, 
was divided into about 40 sovereign states, and that at that time the Germans did not venture upon aggression. In those years, the nation was prosperous. If all the German princes had fulfilled the obligation imposed on them by the settlement of Vienna to grant their citizens parliamentary institutions, the Germans would have had no reason to change their political organization. The German Confederation safeguarded them against foreign aggression while preventing them from waging wars of conquest. Thus, the system proved beneficial both to Germany and to the whole of Europe. These belated eulogists of Prince Metternich ignore the most important facts of German history. They do not realize that the Germans of those days were liberal and that their ideas of national greatness differed radically from those of modern nationalism. They cherish the values which Schiller had praised. The German Empire and the German nation, said Schiller, in the draft of his unfinished poem, German Greatness, are two different things. The glory of Germany was never vested in the persons of its leaders. The German has established his own values quite apart from political values. Even if the empire goes astray, German dignity would remain untouched. It is a moral eminence vested in the nation's civilization and character, which do not depend on political vicissitudes. Such were the ideas of the Germans of the early 19th century. In the midst of a world marching toward genuine liberalism, the Germans also were enthusiastically liberal. They would have viewed the Deutscher Bund as a satisfactory solution of the political problem if it had not been the realm of despotic princes. Today, in this age of nationalism, the Germans also are nationalists. They have to face a very serious economic problem, and their atheistic prejudices prevent them from seeing any solution other than the conquest of Lebensraum. They worship the brute force whose elimination Schiller had hoped for. Under such conditions, nationalism could not be overthrown by a partition of the Reich into a score of independent states. In each of these states, the heat of nationalist passions would flare up. The bellicose spirit would virtually coordinate and unify their political and military activities, even if formally the independence of each section were to be preserved up to the day of the new mobilization. The history of Central Europe could have taken a different course. A part of those people who today get their education in classical German taught in school or learned at home and used in conversation with people whom they do not address in their local dialect might be using another of the present-day languages or a language of their own. One group of the people using the low German dialect, Plot, has created the Dutch language. Another more numerous group of the low Germans has joined the linguistic community of the high Germans. The political and economic process which made the Dutch people into a nation with a language of its own could have resulted in a more important diminishing of the German linguistic group. If the Counter-Reformation and Jesuitism had not crippled all spiritual, intellectual, and literary freedom in Bavaria and in Austria, the idiom of the Saxon Chancellery, which owes its supremacy to Luther's version of the Bible and to the Protestant writings of the first two centuries of the Reformation, might have found a serious rival in a literary language developed out of the Bavarian dialect. One could indulge even further in such reveries, whether with regard to the Swabian dialect or to the Slavonic and Baltic idioms of the Northeast. But such dreams cannot change historical facts and political reality. The Germans are today the most numerous linguistic group in Europe. The age of etatism and nationalism must recognize the importance of this fact. The greater part of the German-speaking group affirm the principle of nationality. They want a unified German state including all German-speaking men. France and Great Britain deserve no credit for the fact that the Austrians and the Swiss reject these plans and are anxious to stay outside the Reich. On the contrary, in suicidal infatuation, the French, and later the English, have done much to weaken Austria and to strengthen Prussian aspirations. 
The Bourbon kings associated in their fight against Austria, not only with Prussia, but even with the Turks. Great Britain was Prussia's ally in the Seven Years' War. What business had Napoleon III to attack Austria? It should be noted that the present-day Axis constellation was but a revival of the League of 1866, when Prussia and Italy assailed Austria. Hungarian nationalists prepared an upheaval with Bismarck's aid, and the Hohenzollern prince of Romania tried to arm for the purpose of giving the finishing stroke. At that time, governments and public opinion both in Paris and in London sympathized with the aggressors. The French and the English learned only later that they had been working pour le roi de Prusse. Our problem would be simpler if all men spoke the same language, or if the various linguistic groups were at least more equal in size. But the presence of 70 million German nationalists in the Reich is a datum, a necessary point of beginning of present-day politics. It cannot be brushed aside by the dismemberment of the Reich. It would be a fatal delusion to assume that the problem could be solved in this way. To safeguard the independence of Austria and Switzerland must, it is true, be the foremost aim of all future plans for a reconstruction of Europe. But the dismemberment of the Old Reich, the Altreich, as the Germans say, in order to distinguish from its Großdeutschland, including Austria, and the Sudetenland, would be a futile measure. Clemenceau has been credited with the dictum that there are 20 million Germans too many. Some fanatics have suggested as the panacea the wholesale extermination of all Nazis. This would solve the problem in a way which, from the Nazi point of view, would be the logical result of total war. The Nazi concept of total victory implies the radical extermination of the French, Czechs, Poles, Jews, and other groups, and they have already started to execute this plan. They, therefore, could not logically call it unfair or barbarous if the United Nations profited from their victory to exterminate the Aryan citizens of the Reich. Neither could the Italians, the Japanese, the Magyars, and the Romanians. But the United Nations are not brutes like the Nazis and fascists. Some authors believe that the problem of linguistically mixed populations could be solved by forcible transplantation and exchange of minorities. They refer to the allegedly favorable results of this procedure as applied in the case of Turkey and Greece. It seems indeed to be a very obvious method of dealing with the unpleasant consequences of linguistic promiscuity. Segregate the quarreling groups and you will prevent further struggles. These plans, however, are untenable. They disregard the fundamental problem of present-day antagonisms the inequality of the various parts of the Earth's surface. Linguistic promiscuity is the result of migrations on the part of men eager to improve their standard of living. Workers move from places where the marginal productivity of labor is low to where it is higher, in other words, from comparatively overpopulated areas to those comparatively underpopulated. To prevent such migrations or to try to undo them by forcible expulsion and repatriation of the immigrants does not solve the problem but only aggravates the conflicts. The same holds true for peasants. There are, for instance, the German farmers in the Banat, one of the most fertile districts of Europe. These people immigrated in the 18th century. At that time, the region was at a very low stage of civilization, thinly populated, devastated by Turkish misrule and continuous wars. Today, the Banat is a bone of contention between the Serbs, Romanians, and Hungarians. The German minority is a thorn in the side of all three claimants. They would all be glad to get rid of the Germans. But what kind of compensation could they offer them in exchange for their farms? There are no farms in the countries inhabited by German majorities that are owned by Serbs or Romanians, and no equivalent farms owned by Hungarians on the borders of Germany. The expropriation and expulsion of the German peasants would not be a step toward pacification. It would only create new grievances. Similar conditions prevail all over Eastern Europe. 
Those who are under the illusion that segregation could solve the international problems of our day are blind to reality. The very fact that the Australians succeeded in maintaining linguistic and racial homogeneity in their country helped to push the Japanese into aggression. The closed-door policy is one of the root causes of our wars. In Great Britain and America, many people are frightened by the prospect of a communist Germany. They are afraid of contagion. But these anxieties are unfounded. Communism is not a disease and it does not spread through germs. No country will catch communism because it has moved nearer to its frontiers. For whatever chance there is of a communist regime coming to power in America or Great Britain, the mentalities of the citizens of these countries are responsible. Pro-communist sympathies within a country have nothing to do with whether its neighbors are communist or not. If Germany turns toward communism, it cannot be the task of foreign nations to interfere. The numerous friends of communism in the Anglo-Saxon countries will oppose preventing a country from adopting a system, which they themselves consider the only beneficial one, and advocate for their own countries. The intelligent opponents of communism, on the other hand, will not understand why their nation should essay to prevent the Germans from inflicting harm upon themselves. The shortcomings of communism would paralyze and disintegrate Germany's industrial apparatus and thereby weaken its military power more effectively than any foreign intervention could ever do. Russia's military strength lies in the remoteness and the vastness of its land. It is impregnable because it is so spacious and impassable. Invaders have defeated the Russian armies, but no one has succeeded in overcoming the geographical obstacles. Charles XII, Napoleon, Hindenburg, and Hitler penetrated deep into Russia. Their victorious advance itself spelled the doom of their armies. The British and the French in the Crimean War and the Japanese 40 years ago only excoriated the edge of the Tsar's empire. The present war has proved anew the thesis of old Prussia's military doctrine that it is futile to beat the Russian forces. After having easily conquered hundreds of thousands of square miles, the Nazi armies were broken by the vastness of the country. The main problem that an invading general has to face in Russia is how to withdraw his forces safely. Neither Napoleon nor Hitler has solved this problem. Communist economic management did not weaken Russia's ability to repel aggression. It did not interfere with geographical factors. Communism in Germany, i.e. the wholesale liquidation of the bourgeoisie and the substitution of bureaucratic socialism of the Soviet pattern for Zwangswirtschaft, would seriously impair or even destroy Germany's capacity to export manufactures. Those who believe that a communist Germany could rearm as easily as Russia fail to recognize the fundamental difference between the two countries. While Russia is not forced to import foreign raw materials, Germany must. But for the export of manufactured goods, Germany would not have been in a position to import all the raw materials needed for its rearmament. The reason why the Nazis preferred the Zwangswirtschaft system to the Soviet system was that they fully recognized the fact that plants directly managed by government clerks cannot compete on the world market. It was German export trade that provided the materials required for the building of the formidable Blitz machine. Bolshevism did not impair Russia's potential of defense. It would annihilate Germany's potential of aggression. The real danger of communism in Germany lies in the probability that its inevitable economic failure may restore the prestige of Nazism lost by the defeat in this war. Just as the unsatisfactory results of the Nazi regime are now making communism popular with the German masses, the bad consequences of communism could possibly contribute to a rehabilitation of Nazism. The German problem is precisely this that Germany has no party ready to support liberalism, democracy, and capitalism, and that it sees only the two alternatives. Nazism, i.e. socialism of the German pattern of all-around planning, Zwangswirtschaft, on the one hand, or Bolshevism, i.e. socialism of the Russian pattern of immediate state management, on the other.
Neither of these two systems could solve Germany's economic problem. Both of them will push Germany toward a policy of conquering more Lebensraum. Part 3. The Union of the Western Democracies The main need is a lasting cooperation among the nations today united in their efforts to smash the totalitarian aggression. No plan can work if the nations concerned do not transform their present alliance into a permanent and lasting union. If they resume their pre-war policies after the victory, if they return to political rivalries and to economic warfare, the result will be a repetition of the developments of 1919 through 1939. There can be neither effective political cooperation nor solidarity and collective security among nations fighting each other in the economic sphere. If the Western democracies do not succeed in establishing a permanent union, the fruits of victory will be lost again. Their disunity will provide the defeated aggressors with the opportunity to enter anew the scene of political intrigues and plots, to rearm and to form a new and stronger coalition for another assault. Unless they choose effective solidarity, the democracies are doomed. They cannot safeguard their way of life if they seek to preserve what the terminology of diplomacy calls national sovereignty. They must choose between vesting all power in a new supranational authority or being enslaved by nations not prepared to treat them on an equal footing. The alternative to incorporation into a new democratic supranational system is not unrestricted sovereignty but ultimate subjugation by the totalitarian powers. This is obvious in the case of small nations like the Dutch, the Danes, the Norwegians. They could live in peace only as long as the much-abused system of the European balance of power protected them. Their independence was safeguarded by the mutual rivalry and jealousy of the big powers. The countries of Latin America enjoy their autonomy because the Monroe Doctrine and the British Navy prevented any attempts at invasion. Those days are gone. Today, these small nations must themselves guard their independence. They will have to renounce their proud isolationism and their intransigent pretensions in any case. The only real question is whether they will become slaves in a totalitarian system or free men in a supranational democracy. As for Great Britain and France, there can be no doubt at all that they will spell their own doom if they are not prepared to abandon their traditional aspirations for unrestricted national sovereignty. This may be still more true for Australia and New Zealand. Then there are the United States and Canada. In the course of the 19th century, they were in the happy position of islanders. Thousands of miles of oceans separated them from potential invaders. They were safe because technical conditions made aggression impossible. But in this age of air power, they have become close neighbors of dangerous foes. It is not impossible that in 10 or 20 years more, an invasion of the North American continent will be technically as easy for Germany or Japan, as was the occupation of the Netherlands in 1940, and that of the Philippines in 1941 and 1942. The citizens of the United States and of Canada will have to realize that there is no other way for them to live in peace than to cooperate with all other democratic peoples. It is therefore obvious that the Western democracies must desist from all further measures of economic warfare in their mutual relations. True, it is still the firm public conviction that it is absurd to hope for a general return to free trade all over the world. But if trade barriers are not removed between the individual countries forming the suggested democratic union, there will be no union at all. In this respect, all plans proposed for a post-war settlement agree. All are based on the expectations that the democracies will stop warring upon one another with the methods of economic nationalism. But they fail to realize what such a solution requires and what its consequences must be. It must be emphasized again and again that economic nationalism is the corollary of etaism, whether interventionism or socialism. Only countries clinging to a policy of unhampered capitalism, today generally derided as reactionary, 
can do without trade barriers. If a country does not want to abandon government interference with business and nevertheless renounces protectionism in its relations with the other member nations of the new union to be formed, it must vest all power in the authority ruling this union and completely surrender its own sovereignty to the supranational authority. But our contemporaries are not at all likely to accept this. The core of the matter has been neglected because the belief prevails that the establishment of a federal union would solve the problem. Some powers, people assert, should be given to the supranational union government. The rest should remain with the governments of the member nations. Federal government has succeeded very well in many countries, especially in the United States and Switzerland. There is no reason, people say, to suspect that it would not prove very satisfactory in the great federal union of the Western democracy suggested by Clarence Streit. Unfortunately, neither Mr. Streit nor the advocates of similar projects take into account the changes that have occurred in the structure of these two federal governments, as in that of all other federations, with the spread of economic interventionism and socialism. The federative systems both in America and in Switzerland were founded in an age which did not consider it the task of civil government to interfere with the business of the citizens. There were in the United States federal customs duties, a federal postal service, and a national currency system. But in almost every other respect, civil government was not concerned with the control of business. The citizens were free to run their own affairs. The government's only task was to safeguard domestic and external peace. Under such conditions, it was simple to divide powers between the federal government and the governments of the various member states. To the federal government, those matters were assigned which went beyond the boundaries of the states, foreign affairs, defense against foreign aggression, the safeguarding of trade between the states, the management of the postal service and of customs. Moreover, the federal government did not interfere with the local affairs of the states, and the states did not interfere with what were considered the private affairs of the citizen. This equilibrium in the distribution of jurisdictional powers was entirely upset by the policy of interventionism. New powers accrued not to the member states but to the federal government. Every step toward more government interference and toward more planning means at the same time an expansion of the jurisdiction of the central government. Washington and Bern were once the seats of the federal governments. Today, they are capitals in the true sense of the word. And the states and the cantons are virtually reduced to the status of provinces. It is a very significant fact that the adversaries of the trend toward more government control describe their opposition as a fight against Washington and against Bern, i.e. against centralization. It is conceived as a contest of states' rights versus the central power. This evolution is not accidental. It is the inevitable outcome of policies of interference and planning. Such measures must be put on a national basis when there are no trade barriers among the member states. There can be no question of adopting these measures for only one state. It is impossible to raise production costs within a territory not sheltered by trade walls. Within a system of interventionism, the absence of interstate trade barriers shifts the political center of gravity to the federal government. Seen from the formalistic viewpoint of the constitutional law, the United States and the Swiss Confederation may doubtless still be classified as federations, but in actual fact they are moving more and more towards centralization. This is still more the case within a socialist system. The various republics which nominally formed the Soviet Union have only a spurious existence. The Soviet Union is a wholly centralized government. The same is true for Germany. The Nazis have replaced the federal constitution with a unitary government. It would be a mistake to believe that resistance to an international unification of government would arise only out of considerations of national pride and vanity. Such obstacles would not be unsurmountable. The main source of opposition would be more deeply rooted. 
The shift of sovereignty from the national authorities to a supranational authority implies a total change in the structure of political forces. Pressure groups, which were very powerful in the national frame and were in a position to shape policies, may become impotent in the supranational frame and vice versa. Even if we are prepared to set aside the ticklish question of migration barriers, the fact is evident. The American cotton producers are eager for high prices of cotton, and although they are only a minority in the United States, are in a position to force a policy of high cotton prices upon their nation. It is doubtful whether within a union including many countries importing cotton, their influence would be the same. On the other hand, British motor car producers are sheltered against American competition through very effective protectionist measures. They would not like to lose this advantage. Examples could be multiplied indefinitely. The most serious and dangerous opposition to the supranational unification of government would come from the most powerful of all modern pressure groups, labor. The workers of those countries in which wage rates are higher would feel injured by the competition of countries with lower wages. They would find this competition unfair. They would denounce it as dumping. But they would not agree to the only measure which could raise wage rates in the countries with less favorable conditions of production, freedom of migration. Modern government interference with business is a policy of protecting influential pressure groups from the effects of free competition in an unhampered market economy. The pressure groups concerned have taken it as a more or less unalterable fact that in the absence of trade barriers between the various parts of a nation, they cannot be protected against the competition within their own country. The New York dairy farmer does not ask for import duties on Wisconsin cheese and butter, and the workers of Massachusetts do not ask for immigration laws against the intrusion of cheap labor from the South. They submit more or less to the fact that there are neither trade barriers nor migration barriers within the United States. The attempts to erect interstate trade barriers have succeeded only to a small degree. Public opinion is opposed to such endeavors. On the other hand, people are so much under the influence of the generally accepted tenets of economic nationalism that they acquiesce in the disadvantages inflicted upon them by protectionism. The consumer makes little protest against an import duty which forces him to pay more than the world market price for the benefit of the producers of some commodity within his own country. But it is very doubtful whether he would put up in the same way with an import duty levied for the benefit of producers in other parts of a supranational union. Would the American consumer be ready to pay higher prices for a commodity in order to further the interests of English manufacturing? Would he not find that the discrimination thus applied against cheaper products of German, Italian, or Japanese origin was prejudicial to his interests? We may wonder whether a supranational policy of protectionism would not lack the ideological foundations which render national protectionism feasible. The main obstacle to the establishment of a supranational customs union with internal free trade among the member nations is the fact that such a customs union requires unlimited supremacy of the supranational authorities and an almost complete annihilation of the national governments if ataism is to be retained. Under present conditions, it makes little difference whether the constitution of the suggested union of the Western democracies is shaped according to the legal pattern of unitary or of federal government. There are only two alternatives open. Trade barriers among the member states, with all their sinister consequences, economic nationalism, rivalries, and discord, or free trade among the member states, and, whatever the constitutional term adopted for it, strictly centralized government. In the first case, there would be not union, but disunion. In the second case, the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Great Britain would be virtually reduced to the status of provincial governors and Congress and Parliament to provincial assemblies. 
It is unlikely that the Americans or the British will easily agree to such a solution of the problem. The policies of government interference with business and of national planning beget economic nationalism. The abandonment of economic nationalism, an indispensable condition for the establishment of lasting peace, can only be achieved through a unification of government, if people do not want to return to the system of unhampered market economy. This is the crux of the matter. The weakness of Mr. Streit's plan lies in the fact that he is not aware of this fundamental problem. It is impossible to avoid this difficulty by a mere legalistic solution. The precariousness of the Union project is not of a constitutional character. It lies in the essence of interventionist and socialist policies. It stems from present-day social and economic doctrines, and it cannot be disposed of by some special constitutional scheme. But let us not forget that such a union must be established if any peace scheme is to work. The alternative to the realization of a union of the Western democracies is a return to the ominous conditions prevailing from 1918 to 1939, and consequently to new and still more dreadful wars. Part 4. Peace in Eastern Europe The attempts to settle the political problems of Eastern Europe by the application of the principle of nationality have met with complete failure. In that corner of the world, it is impossible to draw boundaries which would clearly and neatly separate the various linguistic groups. A great part of this territory is linguistically mixed, that is, inhabited by people of different languages. The rivalries and the mutual hatreds of these nations make them an easy prey for the dynamism of the three big adjacent powers, Germany, Russia, and Italy. If left alone, they will sooner or later lose their independence unless they cease from discord. Both world wars originated in this area. Twice the Western democracies have drawn the sword to defend the threatened independence of these nations. Yet the West has no real material interest in preserving the integrity of these peoples. If the Western democracies succeeded in establishing an order that safeguards them against new aggressions, it will make no difference to them whether Warsaw is the capital of an independent Polish state or a provincial town of Russia or Germany, or whether Athens is a Greek or an Italian city. Neither the military nor the economic power of the Western democracies would be seriously imperiled if Russia, Germany, and Italy were to partition these lands among them, nor will it matter for them whether a Lithuanian language and literature persist or whether they disappear. The interest of the Western democracies in East European affairs is altruistic and unselfish. It is the outcome of a disinterested sympathy, of an enthusiasm for freedom, and of a sense of justice. These feelings have been grossly exploited by all these Eastern nations. Their friends in the West did not want to help them oppress minorities or make inroads upon their weaker neighbors. When the Western democracies hailed Kossuth, it did not occur to them that they favored ruthless oppression of Slovaks, Croats, Serbs, Ukrainians, and Romanians. When they expressed their sympathies for Poland, they did not mean to approve the methods applied by the Poles against Ukrainians, Lithuanians, and Germans. They sought to promote liberalism and democracy, not nationalistic tyranny. It is probable that the political leaders of the Eastern European linguistic groups have not yet become aware of the change going on in the attitudes of the Western nations. They are right in expecting that their nations will be restored to political independence after the victorious end of the war. But they are badly mistaken if they assume that the Western nations will fight a third world war for them. They themselves will have to establish a political order which enables them to live in peace with their immediate neighbors and to defend their independence against future aggression on the part of the great powers, Russia, Germany, and Italy. All the plans suggested in the past for the formation of an East European or Danubian Customs Union or Federation, or for a simple restoration of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, were doomed to fail because they were based on erroneous assumptions. 
Their authors did not recognize that a customs union in this age of government interference with business is incompatible with maintaining the sovereignty of the member nations. They did not grasp the fact that under present conditions, a federation means that virtually all power is vested in the supranational federal government, and the national governments are reduced to the status of provinces. The only way to substitute peace and cooperation for the existing disunion in Eastern Europe or in any other part of the world is the establishment of a unitary government, unless the nations will return to laissez-faire. Unitary government is the more adequate and indispensable in Eastern Europe, in that it also provides the only solution for the peculiar problem of boundaries and linguistic minorities. A federation could never succeed in this respect. Under a federative system, the Constitution assigns some governmental powers to the federal government and others to the local governments of the member states. As long as the Constitution remains unchanged, the federal government does not have the power to interfere in questions which are under the jurisdiction of the member states. Such a system can work and has worked only with homogeneous peoples, where there exists a strong feeling of national unity and where no linguistic, religious, or racial differences divide the population. Let us assume that the constitution of a supposed Eastern European Federation grants to every linguistic minority group the right to establish schools where its own language is taught. Then it would be illegal for a member state to hinder the establishment of such schools directly or openly. But if the building code or the administration of public health and firefighting are in the exclusive jurisdiction of the member states, a local government could use its powers to close the school on the ground that the building did not comply with the requirements fixed by these regulations. The federal authorities would be helpless. They would not have the right to interfere even if the grounds given proved to be only a subterfuge. Every kind of constitutional prerogative granted to the member states could be abused by a local government. If we want to abolish all discrimination against minority groups, if we want to give all citizens actual and not merely formal freedom and equality, we must vest all powers in the central government alone. This would not cripple the rights of a loyal local government eager to use its powers in a fair way but it would hinder the return to methods whereby the whole administrative apparatus of the government is used to harm minorities. A federation in Eastern Europe could never abolish the political implications of the frontiers. In every member state, there would remain the problem of minorities. There would be oppression of minorities, hatred, and irredentism. The government of every member state would continue to consider its neighbors as adversaries. The diplomatic and consular agents of the three great neighboring powers would try to profit from these quarrels and rivalries, and might succeed in disrupting the whole system. The main objectives of the new political order which has to be established in Eastern Europe must be number 1. To grant every citizen full opportunity to live and to work freely without being molested by any linguistic group within the boundaries of Eastern Europe. Nobody should be persecuted or disqualified on account of his mother tongue or his creed. Every linguistic group should have the right to use its own language. No discrimination should be tolerated against minority groups or their members. Every citizen should be treated in such a way that he will call the country without any reservation, my country, and the government, our government. Number two, not to lead any linguistic group to expect improvement in its political status by a change in territorial organization. The difference between a ruling linguistic group and oppressed linguistic minorities must disappear. There must be no irredenta. Number three, to develop a system strong enough to defend its independence against aggression on the part of its neighbors. Its armed forces must be able to repel without foreign assistance an isolated act of aggression on the part of Germany or Italy or Russia. It should rely on the help of the Western democracies only against a common aggression by at least two of these neighbors.
The whole territory of Eastern Europe must therefore be organized as a political unit under a strictly unitary democratic government. Within this area, every individual should have the right to choose where he wishes to live and to work. The laws and the authorities should treat all natives, i.e. all citizens of East Europe, alike, without privileges or discrimination for or against individuals or groups. Let us call this new political structure the Eastern Democratic Union, EDU. Within its framework, the old political units may continue to function. A dislocation of the historically developed entities is not required. Once the problem of borders has been deprived of its disastrous political implications, most of the existing national bodies can remain intact. Having lost their power to inflict harm upon their neighbors and upon their minorities, they may prove very useful for the progress of civilization and human welfare. Of course, these former independent sovereign states will, in the framework of the EDU, be nothing more than provinces. Retaining all their honorary forms, their kings or presidents, their flags, anthems, state holidays and parades, they will have to comply strictly with the laws and administrative provisions of the EDU. But so long as they do not try to violate these laws and regulations, they will be free. The loyal and law-abiding government of each state will not be hindered but strongly supported by the central government. Special commissioners of the EDU will have to oversee the functioning of the local governments. Against all administrative acts of the local authorities injured, parties will have the right to appeal to this commissioner and to the central government, provided that such acts do not come under the jurisdiction of a law court. All disagreements between local governments or between the commissioner and the local government will be ultimately adjudicated by the central government, which is responsible only to the central parliament. The supremacy of the central government should not be limited by any constitutional prerogatives of local authorities. Disagreements should be settled by the central government and by the central parliament, which should judge and decide every problem in the light of its implications for the smooth working of the total system. If, for instance, a dispute arises concerning the city of Wilno, one of the innumerable neuralgic points of the East, the solution will be sought not only between the Polish and Lithuanian local governments or between the Polish and Lithuanian members of the central parliament. The central government and the central parliament will try to find a solution which may also be applied with justice to similar cases arising in Budweis, in Temesvar, or in Salonika. In this way, it may be possible to have a unitary government with a practically satisfactory degree of administrative decentralization. The EDU would have to include all the territories between the eastern borders of Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, and the western borders of Russia, including all Balkan countries. It would have to take in the area which in 1933 formed the sovereign states of Albania, Austria, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Danzig, Estonia, Greece, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and Yugoslavia. It would have to include the territory that in 1913 comprised the Prussian provinces of East Prussia, West Prussia, Posen, and Silesia. The first three of these provinces belonged neither to the Holy Empire nor to the German Confederation. Silesia was a part of the Holy Empire only as an adjunct of the Kingdom of Bohemia. In the 16th and 17th centuries, it was ruled by dukes who belonged to a branch of the Piasts, the old royal family of Poland. When Frederick the Great in 1740 embarked on the conquest of Silesia, he tried to justify his claims by pointing out that he was the legitimate heir of the Piast family. All four of these provinces are inhabited by a linguistically mixed population. Italy must cede to the EDU all the European countries which it has occupied since 1913, including the Dodecanese Islands and furthermore the eastern part of the province of Venice, Fruili, a district inhabited by people speaking a Reto-Romanic idiom. 
Thus, the EDU will include about 700,000 square miles, with some 120 million people using 17 different languages. Such a country, when united, will be strong enough to defend its independence against one of the three mighty neighbors, Russia, Germany, and Italy. The most delicate problem of the EDU will be the linguistic problem. All 17 languages need, of course, to be treated equally. In every district, country, or community, the tribunals, government agencies, and municipalities would have to use every language which in that district, country, or community was spoken by more than 20% of the population. English ought to be used as an international subsidiary language for dealings among members of the different linguistic groups. All laws would be published in English and in all 17 national idioms. This system may seem strange and complicated, but we have to remember that it worked rather satisfactorily in Old Austria with its eight languages. Contrary to a widespread and erroneous notion, the German language had no constitutional preeminence in Imperial Austria. The governments of Eastern Europe abused the system of compulsory education in order to force minorities to give up their own languages and to adopt the language of the majority. The EDU would have to be strictly neutral in this respect. There would be private schools only. Any citizen or group of citizens would have the right to run an educational institution. If these schools complied with the standards fixed by the central government, they would be subsidized by a lump sum for every pupil. The local governments would have the right to take over the administration of some schools, but even in these cases, the school budgets would be kept independent of the general budget of the local government. No public funds but those allocated by the central government as subsidies for these schools should be used. The politicians and statesmen of these eastern nations are united today on only one point, the rejection of such a proposal. They do not see that the only alternative is permanent unrest and war among them, and perhaps partition of their territories among Germany, Russia, and Italy. They do not see it because they rely on the invincibility of the British and American forces. They cannot imagine the Americans and British having any task in this world but to fight an endless sequence of world wars for their benefit. It would be merely an evasion of reality for the refugee representatives of these nations to try to convince us that they intend to dispose peacefully of their mutual claims in the future. It is true that Polish and Czech refugees before Germany invaded Russia made an agreement concerning the delimitation of their boundaries and future political cooperation. But this scheme will not work when actually put into practice. We have ample experience that all agreements of this type fail because the radical nationalists never accept them. All endeavors at an understanding between Germans and Czechs in Old Austria met with disaster because the fanatical youth rejected what the more realistic older leaders had proposed. Refugees are, of course, more ready to compromise than men in power. During the First World War, the Czechs and Slovaks, as well as the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, came to an understanding in exile. Later events proved the futility of their agreements. In addition, we must remember that the area which is claimed by both the Czechs and the Poles is comparatively small and of minor importance for each group. There is no hope that a similar agreement ever could be effected between the Poles on the one hand and the Germans, Lithuanians, Russians, or Ukrainians on the other hand, or between the Czechs on the one hand and the Germans or Hungarians or Slovaks on the other. What is needed is not delimitation of specific borderlines between two groups, but a system where the drawing of borderlines no longer creates disaffection, unrest, and irredentism among minorities. Democracy can be maintained in the East only by an impartial government. Within the proposed EDU, no single linguistic group would be sufficiently numerous to dominate the rest. The most numerous would be the Poles, and they would comprise about 20% of its whole population. One could object that the territory assigned to the EDU is too large and that the different linguistic groups involved have nothing in common. 
It may indeed seem strange that the Lithuanians should cooperate with the Greeks, although they never before have had any other mutual relations than the ordinary diplomatic ones. But we have to realize that the very function of the EDU would be to create peace in a part of the world ridden by age-old struggles among linguistic groups. Within the whole area assigned to the EDU, it is impossible to discover a single undisputed borderline. If the EDU has to include both Lithuanians and Poles, because there is a large area in which Poles and Lithuanians live inextricably mixed, and to which both nations vigorously lay claim, it must include the Czechs too, because the same conditions prevail between the Poles and the Czechs as subsist between the Poles and Lithuanians. The Hungarians, again, must be included for the same reasons, and so must the Serbs, and consequently the other nations which claim parts of the territory known as Macedonia i.e. the Bulgarians, Albanians, and Greeks. For the smooth functioning of the EDU, it is not necessary that the Greeks should consider the Lithuanians as friends and brothers, although it seems probable that they would have more friendly feelings for them than for their immediate neighbors. What is needed is nothing else than the conviction of the politicians of all these peoples that it is no longer possible to oppress men who happen to speak another language. They do not have to love one another, they merely have to stop inflicting harm upon one another. The EDU would include many millions of German-speaking citizens and more than a 100,000 Italian-speaking citizens. It cannot be denied that the hatred engendered by the methods used by the Nazis and the fascists during the present war will not disappear at once. It will be difficult for Poles and Czechs to meet for collaborations with Germans and for Serbs and Slovenes to cooperate with Italians. But none of these objections can be considered valid. There is no other solution of the Eastern European problem. There is no other solution that could give these nations a life of peace and political independence. Part 5. The Problems of Asia When the age of liberalism dawned, the Western nations began to have scruples about their colonial enterprises. They felt ashamed of their treatment of backward peoples. They became aware of contrast between the principles of their domestic policies and the methods applied in colonial conquest and administration. What business did they, liberals and democrats as they were, have to govern foreign nations without the consent of those ruled. But then they had an inspiration. It was the white man's burden to bring the blessings of modern civilization to backward peoples. It would be unjust to say that this exculpation was mere cant and hypocrisy. Great Britain had reshaped its colonial system radically in order to adjust it to the best possible promotion of the welfare of the natives. In the last 50 years, British administration of India and colonial affairs has been by and large government for the people. However, it has not been governed by the people. It has been governed by an alien master race. Its justification lay in the assumption that the natives are not qualified for self-government and that, left alone, they would fall victim to ruthless oppression by conquerors less civilized and less benevolent than the English. It further implied that Western civilization, with which the British wanted to make the subdued natives happy, was welcome to them. We may take it for granted that this was really the case. The proof is that all these colored races were and are anxious not only to adopt the technical methods of Western civilization, but also to learn Western political doctrines and ideologies. It was precisely this acceptance of Western thought that finally led them to cry out against the absolute rule of the invaders. The demands for liberty and self-determination on the part of the Asiatic peoples are a result of their Westernization. The natives are fighting the Europeans with ideologies borrowed from them. It is the greatest achievement of Europe's 19th century Asiatic policies that the Arabs, the Hindus, and the Chinese have at length grasped the meaning of Western political doctrines. 
The Asiatic peoples are not justified in blaming the invaders for atrocities committed in previous years. Indefensible as these excesses were from the point of view of liberal tenets and principles, they were nothing extraordinary when measured by the standards of Oriental customs and habits. But for the infiltration of Western ideas, the East might never have questioned the propriety of slaughtering and torturing foes. Their autochthonous methods were much more brutal and abominable. It is paradoxical to bring up these bygone grievances in the very hour when the most numerous Asiatic nations can preserve their civilizations, only with the military aid of the Anglo-Saxons. A defeat of the United Nations would spell the doom of the Chinese, of the Hindus, of the Muslims of Western Asia, and of all the smaller nations of Asia and Africa. The victory of the United Nations will bring them political autonomy. They will get the opportunity to demonstrate whether they have absorbed more from the West than the modern methods of total war and total destruction. The problem of the relations between East and West is obscured by the shortcomings and deficiencies of current ways of dealing with political issues. The Marxians purposely ignore the inequality of natural conditions of production in different parts of the world. Thus, they eliminate from their reasoning the essential point. They bar their own way to either a satisfactory interpretation of the past or an understanding of the tasks of the future. In the face of the inequality of natural resources, there are today no such things as internal affairs of a country which do not concern the rest of mankind. It is to the vital interest of every nation that all over the earth the most efficient methods of production should be applied. It hurts the well-being of everybody if, for instance, those countries which have the most favorable conditions for their production of rubber do not make the most efficient use of their resources. One country's economic backwardness may injure everybody else. Autarky in one country may lower the standard of living in every other country. If a nation says, let us alone, we do not want to interfere with your affairs, and we will not permit you to mind our business, it may wrong every other people. It was these considerations that led the Western nations to force China and Japan to abandon their age-old isolation and to open their ports to foreign trade. The blessings of this policy were mutual. The drop of mortality figures in the East proves it clearly. East and West would both suffer if the political autonomy of the Asiatic nations were to result in a fall in their production or in their partial or complete withdrawal from international trade. We may wonder whether the champions of Asiatic home rule have fully grasped the importance of this fact. In their minds, modern ideas are in a curious way blended with atavistic ones. They are proud of their old civilizations. They are apt to despise the West. They have a far sharper recognition of the shortcomings of Europe and America, their militarism and nationalism, than of their great achievements. Marxian totalitarianism appeals more to them than the bourgeois prejudices of liberty, capitalism, and democracy. Do they realize that there is but one way to prosperity open for their nations, namely the unconditional adoption of Western industrialism? Most of the leaders of the Oriental nations are convinced that the West will turn toward socialism. But this could not change the main issue. Backwardness in the East would offer the same problems for a social West as for a capitalist West. The age of national isolation of individual countries is gone with the progress of division of labor. No nation can now look with indifference at the internal conditions of other countries. Part 6. The Role of the League of Nations The League of Nations, which the Covenant of 1919 established in Geneva, was not an international world government. It was mainly an organization for periodic conferences of the delegates of those national governments that were prepared to attend them. There were no international executive offices. There was only a staff whose duty consisted mostly in writing reports and in collecting statistical materials. Further, many of the staff considered themselves not officers of the international body, but unofficial representatives of the governments of their own nations. 
They got their appointments on the recommendation of their own governments. They were eager to serve their own governments well in order someday to get better positions in the civil service of their own countries. Some of these officials were not only internationally minded but imbued with the spirit of nationalism. There were some strange figures among them. Vidkun Kisling, for example, served for some time as an officer of the League. Rost von Tonningen was for many years a member of the Secretariat and in 1931 became the League's delegate in Vienna. He left this important position after some years in order to become deputy chief of the Dutch Nazi Party and is today one of the outstanding figures in the puppet administration of the Netherlands. There were in the League also, it is true, some of our most brilliant and high-minded contemporaries. But unfortunately, conditions paralyzed their efforts and most of them left disappointed. It is of little concern whether the League of Nations is restored after the war or not. It contributed very little to the promotion of peace and international cooperation. It will not be any more successful in the future. Nationalism will frustrate its work as it did in the years before 1939. Many distinguished Americans indict their own country for the failure of the League. If America had joined the League, they say, it would have cloaked this institution with the prestige needed for the fulfillment of its tasks. This is an error. Although formally not a member of the League, the United States gave valuable support to its efforts. It mattered little that America did not contribute to its revenues or send official delegates to its meetings. The world knew very well that the American nation backed the endeavors to maintain peace. American official cooperation in Geneva would not have stopped the aggressor nations. As all nations today indulge in nationalism, the governments are necessarily supporters of nationalism. Little for the cause of peace can be expected from the activities of such governments. A change of economic doctrines and ideologies is needed, not special institutions, offices, or conferences. The chief shortcoming of many plans suggested for a durable peace is that they do not recognize this fact. Eminent champions of the League of Nations, such as Professor J.B. Condliffe and Professor J.E. Meade, are confident that the government will be wise enough to eradicate by common efforts and mutual agreements the most objectionable excrescences of economic nationalism and to mitigate conflicts by granting some concessions to the complainants. They recommend moderation and restraint in the use of national sovereignty, but at the same time they advocate more governmental control without suspecting that this must necessarily push every government toward intransigent nationalism. It is vain to hope that a government committed to the principles of Etaism could renounce striving for more insulation. We may assume that there are in every country men ready to endorse the proposals of Misters Conliffe and Meade, but they are minorities whose opinions do not find a wide response. The further a nation goes on the road toward public control of business, the more it is forced to withdraw from the International Division of Labor. Well-intentioned exhortations on the part of internationally-minded economists cannot dissuade an interventionist government from measures of economic nationalism. The League of Nations may continue to combat contagious disease, the drug traffic, and prostitution. It may continue to act in the future as an international bureau of statistics. It may develop its work in the field of intellectual cooperation. But it is an illusion to hope that it could render more than minor services for the promotion of peace. Conclusion Number 1 the 18th century liberals had full confidence in men's perfectibility. All men they held are equal and endowed with the faculty of grasping the meaning of complicated inferences. They will therefore grasp the teachings of economics and social philosophy. They will realize that only within a free market economy can the rightly understood, i.e. the long-run, interests of all individuals and all groups of individuals be in complete harmony. They will carry into effect the liberal utopia. Mankind is on the eve of an age of lasting prosperity and eternal peace, because reason will henceforth be supreme. 
This optimism was entirely founded on the assumption that all people of all races, nations, and countries are keen enough to comprehend the problems of social cooperation. It never occurred to the old liberals to doubt this assumption. They were convinced that nothing could stop the progress of enlightenment and the spread of sound thinking. This optimism was behind the confidence of Abraham Lincoln that you can't fool all of the people all of the time. The economic theories on which the liberal doctrine is based are irrefutable. For more than 150 years, all the desperate endeavors to disprove the teachings of what one of the greatest precursors of totalitarianism and Nazism, Carlyle described as the dismal science, failed pitifully. All these would-be economists could not shake the Ricardian theory of foreign trade or the teachings concerning the effects of government meddling with a market economy. Nobody succeeded in the attempts to reject the demonstration that no economic calculation is possible in a socialist system. The demonstration that within a market economy there is no conflict between rightly understood interests could not be refuted. But will all men rightly understand their own interests? What if they do not? This is the weak point in the liberal plea for a free world of peaceful cooperation. The realization of the liberal plan is impossible because, at least for our time, people lack the mental ability to absorb the principles of sound economics. Most men are too dull to follow complicated chains of reasoning. Liberalism failed because the intellectual capacities of the immense majority were insufficient for the task of comprehension. It is hopeless to expect a change in the near future. Men are sometimes not even able to see the simplest and most obvious facts. Nothing ought to be easier to understand than victory or defeat on the battlefield. And yet scores of millions of Germans are firmly convinced that it was not the Allies but Germany that was victorious in the First World War. No German nationalist ever admitted that the German army was defeated at the Marne both in 1914 and 1918. If such things were possible with the Germans, how can we expect that the Hindus, the worshippers of the cow, should grasp the theories of Ricardo and of Bentham? Within a democratic world, the realization even of the socialist plans would depend upon the acknowledgement of their expediency on the part of the majority. Let us for an instant put aside all qualms concerning the economic feasibility of socialism. Let us, for the sake of argument, assume that the socialists are right in their own appraisal of socialist planning. Marx, imbued with Hegelian Weltgeist mysticism, was convinced that there are some dialectic factors working in the evolution of human affairs that push the proletarians, the immense majority, toward the realization of socialism. Of course, his own brand of socialism. He tacitly assumed both that socialism best suits the interests of the proletariat and that the proletarians will comprehend it. Said Franz Oppenheimer, once a professor of the Marxian-dominated University of Frankfurt, the individual errs often in looking after his interests. A class never errs in the long run. Recent Marxians have abandoned these metaphysical illusions. They had to face the fact that although socialism is in many countries the political creed of the vast majority, there is no unanimity with regard to the kind of socialism that should be adopted. They have learned that there are many different brands of socialism and many socialist parties fighting one another bitterly. They no longer hope that a single pattern of socialism can meet with the approval of the majority and that their own idea will be supported by the whole proletariat. Only an elite, these Marxians are now convinced, has the intellectual power to understand the blessings of genuine socialism. This elite, the self-styled vanguard of the proletariat, not its bulk, has the sacred duty, they conclude, to seize power by violent action, to exterminate all adversaries, and to establish the socialist millennium. In this matter of procedure, there is perfect agreement between Lenin and Werner Sombart, between Stalin and Hitler. They differ only in respect to the question of who the elite is. The liberals cannot accept the solution.
They do not believe that a minority, even if it were the true elite of mankind, can lastingly silence the majority. They do not believe that humanity can be saved by coercion and oppression. They foresee that dictatorships must result in endless conflicts, wars, and revolutions. Stable government requires the free consent of those ruled. Tyranny, even the tyranny of benevolent despots, cannot bring lasting peace and prosperity. There is no remedy available if men are not able to realize what best suits their own welfare. Liberalism is impracticable because most people are still too unenlightened to grasp its meaning. There was a psychological error in the reasoning of the old liberals. They overrated both the intellectual capacity of the average men and the ability of the elite to convert their less judicious fellow citizens to sound ideas. Number two, the essential issues of present-day international problems can be condensed as follows. Number one, durable peace is only possible under perfect capitalism. Hitherto, never and nowhere completely tried or achieved. In such a Jeffersonian world of unhampered market economy, the scope of government activities is limited to the protection of the lives, health, and property of individuals against violent or fraudulent aggression. The laws, the administration, and the courts treat natives and foreigners alike. No international conflicts can arise. There are no economic causes of war. Number two, the free mobility of labor tends toward an equalization of the productivity of labor and thereby of wage rates all over the world. If the workers of the comparatively underpopulated countries seek to preserve their higher standard of living by immigration barriers, they cannot avoid hurting the interests of the workers of the comparatively overpopulated areas. In the long run, moreover, they hurt their own interests too. Number three, government interference with business and trade union policies combine to raise domestic costs of production and thus lower the competitive power of domestic industries. They, therefore, would fail to attain their ends even in the short run if they were not complemented by migration barriers, protection for domestic production, and, in the case of export industries, by monopoly. As any dependence on foreign trade must restrict a government's power to control domestic business, interventionism necessarily aims at autarky. Number four, socialism, when not operated on a world scale, is imperfect if the socialist country depends on imports from abroad and therefore must still produce commodities for sale in the market. It does not matter whether the foreign countries to which it must sell and from which it must buy are socialist or not. Socialism, too, must aim at autarky. Number five, protectionism and autarky mean discrimination against foreign labor and capital. They not only lower the productivity of human effort and thereby the standard of living for all nations, but they create international conflicts. Number six, there are nations which, for lack of adequate natural resources, cannot feed and clothe their population out of domestic resources. These nations can seek autarky only by embarking upon a policy of conquest. With them, bellicosity and lust of aggression are the outcome of their adherence to the principles of etaism. Number seven, if a national government hinders the most productive use of its country's resources, it hurts the interests of all other nations. The economic backwardness of a country with rich natural resources injures all those whose conditions could be improved by a more efficient exploitation of this natural wealth. Number eight, Ataism aims at equality of income within the country. But on the other hand, it results in a perpetuation of the historically developed inequalities between poorer nations and richer nations. The same considerations which push the masses within a country toward a policy of income equality drive the peoples of the comparatively overpopulated countries into an aggressive policy toward the comparatively underpopulated countries. They are not prepared to bear their relative poverty for all time to come simply because their ancestors were not keen enough to appropriate areas better endowed by nature. 
what the progressives assert with regard to domestic affairs, that traditional ideas of liberty are only a fraud as far as the poor are concerned, and that true liberty means equality of income. The spokesmen of the have-not nations declare with regard to international relations. In the eyes of the German nationalists, there is only one freedom that counts, Nahrungsfreit, freedom from importing food, i.e. a state of affairs in which their nation could produce within its own borders all the food and raw materials it needs in order to enjoy the same standard of living as the most favored of the other nations. That is their notion of liberty and equality. They style themselves revolutionaries fighting for their imprescriptible rights against the vested interests of a host of reactionary nations. Number 9. A socialist world government could also abolish the historically developed inequalities between the citizens of comparatively overpopulated areas and those of underpopulated areas. However, the same forces which frustrated the attempts of the old liberals to sweep away all barriers hindering the free mobility of labor, commodities, and capital will violently oppose that kind of socialist world management. Labor in the comparatively underpopulated countries is unlikely to relinquish its inherited privileges. The workers are unlikely to accept policies which, for a long period of transition, would lower their own standard of living and improve only the material conditions of the underprivileged nations. The workers of the West expect from socialism an immediate rise in their own well-being. They would vigorously reject any plan to establish a democratic system of world government, in which their votes would be outnumbered by those of the immense majority of underprivileged peoples. Number 10. Federal government can work only under a free market economy. Etaism requires a strictly centralized government if there are no trade barriers insulating the member states from one another. The present plans for a world federation or even only for a federation of the Western democracies are therefore illusory. If people refuse to abandon Etaism, they cannot escape the curse of economic nationalism except by vesting all power in a unified supranational government of the world or of a union of democratic nations. But unfortunately, the vested interests of powerful pressure groups are opposed to such a renunciation of national sovereignty. It is useless to indulge in reveries. Government control of business engenders conflict for which no peaceful solution can be found. It was easy to prevent unarmed men and commodities from crossing the borders. It is much more difficult to prevent armies from trying it. The socialists and the other atheists were able to disregard or to silence the warning voices of the economists. They could not disregard or silence the roar of cannon and the detonation of bombs. All the oratory of the advocates of government omnipotence cannot annul the fact that there is but one system that makes for durable peace, a free market economy. Government control leads to economic nationalism and thus results in conflict. Number 3. Many people console themselves by saying, there have always been wars. There will be wars and revolutions in the future too. The dreams of liberalism are illusory, but there is no cause for alarm. Mankind got along very well in the past in spite of almost continuous fighting. Civilization will not perish if conflicts continue in the future. It can flourish fairly well under conditions less perfect than those depicted by the liberal utopians. Many were happy under the rule of Nero or of Robespierre, in the days of the barbarian invasions or of the Thirty Years' War. Life will go on. People will marry and beget children, work, and celebrate festivals. Great thinkers and poets spent their lives in deplorable circumstances, but that did not prevent them from doing their work. Neither will present or future political troubles hinder coming generations from performing great things. There is, however, a fallacy in such thinking. Mankind is not free to return from a higher state of division of labor and economic prosperity to a lower stage. 
As a result of the age of capitalism, the population of the earth is now vastly greater than on the eve of the capitalist era and standards of living are much higher. Our civilization is based on the international division of labor. It cannot survive under autarky. The United States and Canada would suffer less than other countries, but even with them economic insulation would result in a tremendous drop in prosperity. Europe, whether itself united or divided, would be doomed in a world where each country was economically self-sufficient. We have to consider further the burden of continuous war preparedness, which such an economic system requires. For instance, in order to be in a position to repel onslaughts from Asia, Australia and New Zealand would have to be transformed into military camps. Their entire population, less than 10 millions, could hardly be a force strong enough for the defense of their coasts until help arrived from other Anglo-Saxon countries. They would have to adopt a system modeled upon that of the old Austrian Militärgrenze, or of the old American frontier, but adapted to the much more complex conditions of modern industrialism. But those gallant Croats and Serbs who defended the Habsburg Empire, and thereby Europe against the Turks, were peasants living in economic self-sufficiency on their family homesteads. So were the American frontiersmen. It was a minor calamity for them when they had to watch the borders rather than till the soil. Their wives and children, in their absence, took care of the farms. An industrial community cannot be operated on such terms. Conditions will be somewhat better in other areas. But for all nations, the necessity of being ready for defense will mean a heavy burden. Not only economic, but moral and political conditions will be affected. Militarism will supplant democracy. Civil liberties will vanish wherever military discipline must be supreme. The prosperity of the last centuries was conditioned by the steady and rapid progress of capital accumulation. Many countries of Europe are already on the way back to capital consumption and capital erosion. Other countries will follow. Disintegration and pauperization will result. Since the decline of the Roman Empire, the West has not experienced the consequences of a regression in the division of labor or of a reduction of capital available. All our imagination is unequal to the task of picturing things to come. Number 4. This catastrophe affects Europe primarily. If the international division of labor is to disintegrate, Europe can only feed a fraction of its present-day population and those only at a much lower standard. Daily experience, rightly understood, will teach the Europeans what the consequences of their policies are. But will they learn the lesson? This has been Omnipotent Government, The Rise of the Total State and Total War. Written by Ludwig von Mises, narrated by Million Quinteros. The Mises Institute hopes you have enjoyed this audiobook. For a world of free market literature, media, and discussion, visit Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org.